Welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all, all of, the time. of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Today, everyone, I'm going to act as your proverbial handkerchief as I'm going to dry your tears, your Japanese tears, to be precise. Yes! We haven't talked about Denny Lane for quite a while on this show now. We did uh, holidays a couple of years ago with my good friend Andrew Brooks, who we want to have on the show again quite soon, actually. And then we covered Denny's quote-unquote debut album, Our Lane, with my good friend Chloe Costello, who you may have seen in the title. And yeah, I thought, you know what? It really wouldn't make sense to not complete the... Wings trilogy of Denny albums. No, this isn't a Wings album per se. We'll be getting into all of that slightly later on. But yeah, this is an album I've known about for quite a while, actually. You know, Japanese Tears typically comes up whenever you're looking up the breakup of Wings or McCartney 2 or Tug of War. And so it's, you know, it's been a bit of a, a weight on my back until this time. I've been looking forward to it because... I really enjoyed Holidays and I enjoyed parts of Arlene and I love Denny as a member of Wings and as a person. But I also know that this is not a very well regarded album. So I have been dreading it. Also, I'm definitely interested in challenging 
that perspective, perhaps, you know, maybe this is a lost gem. It would certainly be nice if it was. But, you know, either way, this was a very fun episode to research, and I feel like I've learned so much about Mr. Lane as an artist and as a person today. So, you know, let's just try and have some fun. I know that not a lot of you will have heard this album in full. I know the majority of you will have heard quite a few of these songs, but... You know, if you haven't listened to Japanese Tears, maybe pause the episode right now and go and check it out. Of course, we will be playing all of the songs for you here today. Here today. But, you know, this is one that really does require knowing the material because it's going to be a real back and forth here. You know, my uh, co-host today, Chloe, she's a real Denny super fan. I'm a little more of a skeptic. So, you know... Let's see if we can come somewhere down in the middle. So yeah, we're going to be going through all of Japanese Tears today. I'm going to do a quick solo segment where I go through all the backstory, and then I will later introduce Chloe in the live segment. But until that time, we do have to quickly tackle the issue of the housekeeping. Ah, sorry, everyone. There's not any news today. There's not any emails to read out. So let's just do the Cliff Notes version of the housekeeping to get in contact with the show drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com if you want to talk about anything McCartney whether it's to do with this podcast the music the man himself drop us an email I always love reading out any and all correspondence for day to day updates go and check out the twitter which is at McCartneypod for bonus Paul or nothing written content go and check out the blog which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com follow us on Instagram Facebook and YouTube by typing in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney podcast. Of course, the YouTube is where you can find all of the episodes of Macca in Your Attic, our sister side show, where me and a guest go through their quote unquote attic and look at five of their rare, precious, sentimental, cool, different, interesting McCartney memorabilia pieces. If you love the show, you'll love Macca in Your Attic. Go and check it out. Now, if you want to help out the show right away, right now, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us some form of interaction, whether it's a review, a comment, uh, some stars, a tick, a thumbs up, sharing it on another page, sharing it on a Facebook group, anything you can do to spread the word of Paul, and I think it's always greatly appreciated. Thank you for that. And if you want to help out the show more directly, you can go check out our Patreon page. Links down below for all of that. And if you join our Patreon family, it's not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get one week's early access to all episodes of Mac It in Your Attic. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So, for example, me and Chloe Costello, we recorded our live part of this a couple of days ago. Oh, actually, coming to a week ago now. And that was all available on the Patreon immediately, in video, unedited. So if you want to, you know, the extra Paul or Nothing goodness, you can go and check that out there. You also get access to lost and bonus episodes of Paul or Nothing, as well as all the scripts I use for each episode. So if you like the show, if you like what we're doing here at Paul or Nothing, and you want to support that, and you've got a bit of spare cash, then please consider joining us. Thank you very much, folks. That is it for all of the plugs. Let's just jump right into Japanese tears. (laughs) 
Now, thank you very much indeed. And now on to a man who was traditionally associated with the world of pop groups. He was in the Moody Blues, he played with Ginger Baker's Air Force, and he founded with Paul McCartney the group Wings. At the moment, he's taking time out to try one or two things on his own. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to welcome Mr. Denny Lane. Hi, Denny. Hi. Have a seat. Thank you. Now then, going out on your own as a career for yeah. how long, do you think? Oh, a few months, I think. Just until we get a chance to go on the road again, really. You know, it's just something I want to do. I've been waiting for a, um, an opportunity to get some time off. I mean, does it spell the end of Wings or anything of that sort? I hope not, Neil. <laughs> I hope not. No, it's, I mean, Wings took a long time to get together, and there's a lot of work being put into it. it as I said, it's just something I like to do, is work on the road, and we're not uh, working on the road with Wings at the moment, so... But unlike Marion, I mean, you are very much a group person, I suspect. Marianne. He started that... <laughs> Mar quite, thank you, Denny. <laughs> I mean, Denny, Denny started, uh, obviously, with a group, but... Uh, as the singer of the group. I mean, it's natural that he should front his own band sometimes. Yes. But when you started, did you, did you start as a group? Did you go into the Moody Blues as a group, or were you...? Yes. Um, apart from sort of songwriting, which I do, obviously, on my own, mm. a lot, most of the time, anyway, I've always been a group person. Mm. So, I mean, doing this as an individual or trying to play the guitar in front of all these people... <laughs> I mean, have, you always, have you always sat down and, and said, actually, the only thing I enjoy and like to do is to play music, is to write songs, is well, to entertain people? I've never done anything else. I've always yeah. sort of been in pantomime and, and groups. Yeah. 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 I mean, does, um, did this set you apart from your fellow kids when you were young? Did they all say, oh, he's funny because he wants to go on the stage? They're all in groups. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is it. Yeah, I mean, a hell of a lot of musicians in Birmingham. Um, and the, the sort of area I come from, which is the, the council house bit, you know. I mean, uh, there's loads of kids in the streets in groups, and uh, that's it. If, again, forgive me for seeming naive, but I mean, if you've been playing that's music right. for something, well, I am naive, this is why. <laughs> I mean, if you've been playing music for, for something like 20 years, do you ever get bored with it? Do you ever think, oh, I haven't oh, got yeah. another song? I mean, I, I've taken sort of time off to do other things, mm. kind of in between. Um, you know, I like lots of, I like sports and things. And actually, I went away to Spain for a while to sort of get out completely, but I ended up getting back into music with the flamenco thing, you know. Does it help you having, I mean, like Paul McCartney has Linda on the stage with him, does it help you having your wife Jojo on the stage with you? Yeah, I suppose so. Hello, Jo. Hello, Jojo. <laughs> I had to do that, otherwise, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm not going down the pub on a Friday, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, she knows the songs, you see. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going on with a new bunch of blokes anyway. I mean, they're all from fairly well-known groups and that, but uh, when they've got time off and I've got time off, we'll mm. do some tours. But she knows the songs and there's sung on the um, recordings mm. with me, so there you go. Well, you're working at the moment on a new single to come out, which... Yeah. I mean, give me a brief example. Of, well, and tell me how you would go about the process of writing a single which is going to be successful. Well, um, Japanese Tears is um, the single. Yeah. Um, it was written about the Japanese fiasco, you know, but uh, I used a string quartet and um, then sort of overdubbed everything myself, mm. except for a Japanese instrument, which is like a big log, 
like a sitar almost, you know, mm. with strings. And um, somebody came in and did that and just pieced it together mm. like that, you know. Mm. I mean, can you, I mean, I don't want to play you an entire song, but can you give me an example of how you set about writing a song? Well, I've got a song here, which, here, here it is. <laughs> oh, yes, there is a song in there, yes, I see. It's very... Guitar, there is a song bursting to get out. I've um, tuned the guitar to an open chord, which is sort of uh, folky sort of mm -hmm. tuning. Right? This one is very appropriate for, uh, this is for President Carter, actually. There's a pointed issue here, I think. Now, that song, I'm listening to that, it's the first time I've ever heard it. In amongst the lyrics, there is, a certain, there is protest. There is, look, the world is getting rotten, for goodness sake, do something about it. Mm. Now, I haven't heard those kind of lyrics since the protest folk singers of the mid-60s. <laughs> yeah, well, where has all that gone to? Where's all that anger gone to that used to be in the pop world? I think it's coming out in the punk sort of music. The only thing is you can't understand the words. <laughs> <laughs> but they're swearing half the time, they have to go... <laughs> to get away with it. But yes, I but think there it's was still a there. bite there, was there not? 1965 or 66? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, sort of folky stuff. Dylan was really good at it, you know. Mm. You were doing a lot of folk stuff. Mm. That, was, that was Marianne. I mean, is this uh, some nonsense? Is memory colouring or is nostalgia colouring my memory? Or do yeah. I not remember a certain angst, a certain 
demand that the world should be a better place. Yes, but it took us ten years to get over the boring 70s. <laughs> now, you see, one can start to actually feel again and be passionate about things, don't you think, Danny? Do you think that's happening? Yeah, I think um, you do go through periods of that. I mean, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm writing these kind of songs because um, I've always liked this kind of stuff, you know. I've always liked this kind of music. You're not the only one. Right, but... Uh, <laughs> and is, just it, been, uh, is it just simple when, when, when you sit down and you think about a song? I mean, Marianne, you write a lot of songs as well. I mean, I do you just... as many as he does. Well, no, perhaps not. But, I mean, when you sit to write a song, do you just think, oh, it'll be nice, now let's just think of a title and a couple of words? Or do you actually get promoted into doing that by reacting to something that's happened in the newspapers or reacting to the yeah. world? I'm trying to write a song about Jimmy Kelly, actually, at the moment. Tell me about that. Who's he? Oh, he got uh, beaten to death by the police in Liverpool. Oh, yeah. It right. is alleged that he... Yes. Why did, why did that case particularly interest you? Um, one of the things that really, really works me up is when policemen get hold of somebody and uh, do them over, and what is even worse is if they die, you see? And uh, it really, really gets me... <laughs> I'm trying to But in it. writing a song about it, what are you then trying to do? Are you trying to, to tell the police something? Are you trying to get it out of tell your system? Tell the police something, you must be kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, if I do it, and I haven't finished it, and it might not work, but if we can do it, um, uh, perhaps just the Kelly family would like to know someone's yeah. on their side, you know? It's good to do things like that. It's, it's your opinion. If you're a musician, then you, that's the way you get across your feelings. But music isn't the only thing. You see things in the paper like that, and it, you want to say something, you know? Let me take you to Japanese Tears, which, again, is a, to me, is almost a case in point, because mm -hmm. there was a certain amount of bother in Tokyo not very long ago <laughs> when your mate was slung into pokey for pokey. carrying a lot of... Pokeo. Uh, Pokio, <laughs> for carrying a lot of drugs around with him. And then you come out with a song called Japanese Tears. Now, there are those in the music press who would say, ah, oh, Denny Lane cashing in on an event. And they're right, uh... too, folks. <laughs> well, why not? Why not? <laughs> no, it's, uh, as I say, well, you know, yes. that is, my, like, my view of what went down. As a little girl came up to me, like a little 12-year-old schoolgirl. I was buying a cheap camera at the time. And the Japanese people are very sort of humble and they don't like to show the feelings and all that. So she comes up to me and to one of these. I look around and she's all very trying to hold the tears back. And I was, you know, very touched. So I, I was sort of talking to my friend over there. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. And he suggested that, you know, Japanese tears, good title for a song. So it's the auto-suggestion that kind of motivates you, you know. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of doing it, probably, if I hadn't have told him that story. When we go into the... I mean, just sort of wrapping it almost now, I mean, can we talk just for a moment about solo performance or recording in a recording studio as opposed to being on the stage? Which is a better thing? Well, for me, I mean, what do you think? I think Being with a band. Yeah, every time on stage. Just getting up there and getting something back from the audience all the time. Mm. Well, being on your own, which I used to do, was really horrible. I mean... <laughs> At least if you're up sta on stage with the, with some other guys, you don't feel quite so mm. sort yeah. of ho hanging on there in the air, you know. Are you happy? Some... Are you happy at the moment, Marianne, what you're doing? Me? Yes. I'm very happy. I've got my band and we're yeah. going to do a tour in the autumn. Yeah. What about you, Danny? 
I'm not very happy, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy, yeah. Because yeah. uh, I've got the best of both worlds. I've got the wings thing, which, as I say, took mm. a long time to get to the point where yeah. we can have some time off. I mean, everybody seems to think that, well, you man. know, we go away for six yeah. months. But there There's you. a good man. Wings are back together. We shall hear more from them and more from Danny. Now, before we go, perhaps you may remember last week that we offered you the Eddie Cochran competition. Well, we had a lot of replies. Thank you very much indeed for them. Hundreds of them came in. And we have got the winners in this big box. So, Marianne, if you'd like to stick your hand in there and pull out a winner, just reading out the name and address, fairly sharpish. Danny, if you'd like to take one out. Anyone there? Marianne, who's the lucky winner? M. Blake, 3 Ventnor Road, Didsbury, Manchester. There you are. Congratulations, Mr. or Mrs. Blake. It doesn't say. Doesn't it just say. says Congratulations, M. M. Blake. Danny. Yeah. Right, this is from C Street, Denny Lane, C Street. Get it? <laughs> Seven Duke Street, uh, Briarcliff, Burnley, Lanx. Well, congratulations. One Eddie Cochran Memorial album on its way there. And finally, one from Mrs. S. Garlic, I think. 19 West Drive, Tintwistle, oh, Hyde in Cheshire. Tintwistle. 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 A wonderful place. So there we are. Three Eddie Cochran Memorial albums winging their way towards you. Note the word wings. Yeah, giving you a plug all the Indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Marianne Faithful, I thought you smiled wonderfully and you're very happy and a good luck to you in the future. And Denny Lane, you were splendid too. I'm grateful to you. Now, Denny, you're going to go over there and play us a little bit of yes. music on that rather nice piano over there, following your guitar. We will be back next week. Uh, Shelley will be back here on Wednesday. I'll be back next Friday. Until then, look after yourselves. Be good, be careful and be kind. And from all of us in the studio, goodbye. But since you gotta go, oh, you had better go now. Go now, go now, go now. For you see me cry, yeah, yeah. I don't want you to tell me what you intend to do now. Don't
Denny Lane plays us out and go now. Just a word in your ear to say that Elga Howarth and Clive James will be here next Wednesday. Shelley, I look forward to seeing you. That's really nice music over there. Ladies and gentlemen, Denny Lane. Now that we're back, it's time for us to go into as much detail, but also as briefly as possible, because I don't want to get to the main part of the show, the backstory behind Japanese Tears. Just so we all know what we're talking about when me and Chloe are discussing all of the songs. So, I guess we must first start off with why Denny released an album in 1980 to begin with, and not any other time. Well, the first part of that answer is pretty easy. In 1980, Wings was set to go on a tour of Japan, one that would have been very lucrative for Denny indeed, as well as satisfying his desire to perform live. However, it was not all meant to be, for, as we know, upon the band's arrival at the airport in Japan, Paul was arrested on the spot for the great crime of marijuana possession. Of course, rather famously amongst Wings fans, the tour was subsequently cancelled, and in the aftermath, McCartney basically put the band on indefinite hiatus whilst he fled to Scotland. And not only did Paul not do anything with Wings, but he also released a solo album, a.k.a. McCartney 2. So you could certainly see, from Denny's perspective, where Paul's priorities lay. Whilst all this was going on, it would only make sense that Denny would assume that he'd have to consider his options about what he's going to be doing with his career looking into the future. You know, the tour is cancelled, Paul is absent without leave, and you have technically already released two quote-unquote, solo albums during your tenure with this band. So, maybe it is time you put together a third whilst things are on the quiet side. Also, and this definitely would have gone through his head, the band might also be over, so it would be pertinent and wise to have a solo album at the ready to capitalise on any media furore surrounding said breakup. You know, people will want to see what your next move is, and you best make sure it's a good one. Still, the idea of a solo release must have been percolating in Denny's head for a while, as six songs on this album were recorded and fit for purpose before the breakup of Wings. You know, Denny knows he's been putting his career, his solo career, on the back burner for this band, but there may actually never be a better time for him to think about doing a solo album. You know, since he last did Holidays with Paul, he's released two more hit quote-unquote albums and several singles. He did Wings Over America, the biggest tour ever, and he did the 79 UK tour, which means, yes, he has been busy. You know, he's been working on all of this stuff and you know, probably hasn't had time to do a full solo album. But, you know, clearly he still had gaps in the schedule. He would, you know, he would have wanted to fill with a bit of his own solo work. It would make sense. And it's not like Paul ever forbade Denny from doing any solo stuff whilst in the band either. Our Lane was released around in between the time of Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway. And then Holidays was actually recorded halfway through the Wings Over the World tour around the time of Wings at the Speed of Sound. So, you know, there is definitely a possible you know version of events whereby Wings does carry on and does do tug of war in 81, 82 
and Denny was just allowed to release Japanese Tears on its own, like in 1980. But that's not how things went down. Wings did eventually fold, and since Denny is quite a clever cat, he had most of an album already put in place. So, whilst the iron is hot and the story is hotter and you're all creatively fired up, why not work on finishing and releasing an album? So we did. And so, if we're going to make an album, we're going to need to make it with some people. This is definitely not going to be a McCartney 2 situation, even though there are certain smatterings of it. And so, let's just quickly run through everyone who contributed towards Japanese Tears. And this list is a little longer than you may imagine. Of course, the first major player on this album is Denny himself. He was born in Tisley here in Birmingham, UK, which is literally half an hour drive from my house. And because of that, he has always been of great interest to me on this podcast. Like, a guy from Birmingham was in Wings. How cool is that? He began as a founding member of the Moody Blues first, with whom he played with from 64 to 66. Then he dabbled with the Electric String Band. And then, as we all know, he went on to found Wings with Paul and played with them as guitarist, lead guitarist, pianist, bassist, backing vocalist, lead vocalist from 71 to 80. In 2018, Denny Lane was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Moody Blues, but he has not yet received that honour for his time in Wings yet. On this album, we will hear Denny play guitar, acoustic guitar, bass, piano, synths, and just like Paul did on the recently released McCartney 2, he even has one occasion where he plays everything. Then we come to the other lane on this album, one Jojo Lane. I'm sure we covered her sufficiently on the previous Denny episode, but for those who don't remember, she was a model who was Denny's squeeze during this period. She was effectively a professional groupie, having had relationships with loads of famous stars like Rod Stewart, blah blah blah. And according to Linda, supposedly, she was originally only hanging around Wings to get after Paul, but shortly after, her and Denny fell in love, and you know the rest is history. Also, there are other rumours that she was possibly one of the drug connections for Wings also. But, you know, we're, we're not here to talk about all of that. I'm sure she's a lovely person and everything. But what little that there is written about her doesn't always tend to betray her most positively. Still, Denny clearly loves her, and that's all that matters, especially today, as it's his love for her, as well as his time around Paul's wife being a vocalist in a band, that led to Jojo being the backing vocalist for this album, as well as doing lead on one song. Then we come to the drummer for the album, and the musician with the most appearances besides Denny himself, who is none other than Steve Holly. Of course, Steve was the drummer for the final incarnation of Wings, with his first appearance being in the I've Had Enough music video, all the way up to the cancelled Japanese tour and the concert for Kampuchea. In the live segment, we discuss why he may have stuck with Denny so much in this period. And, you know, it obviously, it's because they're friends. Like, I don't know why I did question it so much. But I wanted to confirm it, and I wanted to know whether Steve needed the work or not. And after digging on Discogs, it shows that in 1980, he actually did the drums for two more albums, Off Centre by Gilbert O'Sullivan and VT by the VTs. And he would steadily appear on two to three albums per year from this point onwards. So 
it's clear that it's not like, oh, after wing, Steve Holly had to work with Denny Lane. It's definitely not that. He was a very well-known session musician, and he continued to get the work. So it's nice to see that Steve was doing this album for sure, just because he loves Denny, they're friends, and he wants to help him out on his solo venture. Then we come to the next member of the Wings alumni, Howie Casey. He was a horns player who is most well-known in this story for the saxophone on Bluebird and being part of the horn section for the Wings Over the World Tour. An ever-present figure, he also did the horns and flutes for Wings at the Speed of Sound, including Denny's own Time to Hide, as well as doing the horns for the Rockestra sessions, aka the Rockestra theme and So Glad to See You Here. It makes sense why these two would be friends. You know, after each show, I imagine Paul and Linda could go off and do their you know family thing, and Denny would be there to hang around with the rest of the band. You know, Denny was the number two in the group. You know, he was, you know, the captain, I imagine, when Paul wasn't around. He was the way to get to Paul as well, you know, except through Linda. But it makes sense that after a lot of shows, Denny would be hanging out with the band, including the horn section and creating bonds that would last a lifetime and we see that expressed on this album whenever howie casey appears on any of these songs it's gonna be only to its benefit he still brings his a game here and he certainly adds production value wherever he's present following on from one wings over the world horn section member to another though we come to thaddeus richards and being that he was part of the Wings Over the World touring band, it was common for him to be in a kind of package deal with Howie Casey, as he too did horns and flutes for Speed of Sound, and he was part of the uh, Rockestra sessions as well, and he was likely here for all the same reasons Howie was as well. I bet they were all great buddies during this period. Thaddeus only appears on one song, though, which is Lover's Light. And just like Howie, he adds a real touch of class to that track. Now, rather ironically, being that we've been speaking so much about Wings and ex-members of Wings, I guess it's now time we talk about Wings themselves, as they too appear on this album. Yes, there are three Wings-era recordings that feature on this album. Not songs that were written during that time and Denny re-recorded them. No, no, the actual recordings are on this album. And what it does is... It means technically all pressings of it in the future can advertise that it features Wings and Paul McCartney to no end. We get Paul McCartney here, we get Linda McCartney, we get uh, on one of the songs Henry McCulloch and uh, Denny Sywell. We also get Lawrence Juba and obviously Steve Holly on one of the tracks. And Paul also has a shared songwriting credit on Send Me the Heart the only one on this album, which also means, you know, the album can advertise that there's a song written by Paul McCartney on it as well. And that particular session, the Send Me the Heart one, may also have had Jeff Britton on the drums. It probably was, but I couldn't find anything that said so for certain. But yeah, we get three wing songs, three wings eras, I believe. You know, it's a nice spread. It certainly adds a lot of nostalgia for the album. And for people like me who were a little... Uh, speculative and reticent to go into an album like this it does admittedly help encourage you to go and check out the album it's a very wise business move like if you are a wings purist and you want to collect everything 
you know, and you didn't want to wait until the Red Rose Speedway archive re-release came out and gave us I Would Only Smile, you would have had to have bought this album to get all those bonus Wings recordings. It's very clever when you think about it, really. It's what I would have done. And then finally, we come to a part of the story that I actually didn't know about going into it, and it did quite take me by surprise. And it's the formation and ever-so-brief existence of the Denny Lane Band. Now, this was a band that Denny formed whilst Wings was still technically going. The band hadn't fully dissolved by that point, but I'm sure Denny's reading the writing on the wall. And not only does he want a band that he can be touring live with right now, but he also wants a band that can also be his next future project. None of the names in this band are particularly relevant to me, but I'm sure many of you listening right now will know many of their names. But the fact that I don't know any of them off by heart points me to the fact that Denny wasn't putting together a supergroup here or anything, and rather like Wings, it was just a bunch of people who he knew and liked to hang out with. On bass, we have Gordon Seller, who was a previous member of Beggar's Opera, as well as the Alex Harvey Band, whoever they are. He would also go on to record with Denny Lane several times at later dates. The keyboardist was Andy Richards, who was a mostly session musician and would eventually go on to play the keyboards for Relax and Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Careless Whispers by George Michael, and It's a Sin for the Pet Shop Boys. So he has a very bright future after the Denny Lane band. Then we have Mike Piggott, who, oddly enough, is both an accomplished guitarist as well as being described as one of the best jazz violinists of his generation. And with Denny coming from the Electric String Band, it is a very sensible move to have these two work together. And then finally, rounding things out, on backing vocals we have <laughs> Jojo Lane, and on drums we have the ever-reliable Steve Holly. And I'd like to think that everyone knows who they are by this point. But yeah, as we'll get into shortly, this band only appears on two songs on this album, like this actual lineup, and they never ended up releasing anything else after. So they really must have fallen apart fast. I know that they did actually play some shows and they did tour for like maybe like four or five dates, something like that, around this time. But that tour was also rather shambolic and equally short-lived. But, you know, there's, there's still something there. And it's a shame that Denny couldn't continue with it. Sadly, there isn't much known about them at all. There's nothing written about them on the internet, especially. But, hey, it's cool to see that Denny wasn't all passive in this Wings breakup and in the post-breakup period. He's making moves. He's recording songs, writing songs, putting bands together, playing live. Does it all succeed, fine and dandy? Of course not. But... I'd just like to reinforce that Denny was perfectly capable of carving his own path and a sustainable music career away from Paul. And with that, we're now going to move on to the actual recording sessions for this album. And rather like many McCartney albums, Japanese Tears was indeed recorded over many years and consists of several separate recording sessions stitched together. This means we have an awful lot of history to cover for such a minor album, so I'll just dive right in. And the first lot of songs we have are the Wings numbers. This doesn't mean that they are the only songs on this album written during the Wings era, but it does mean that they are the ones with the official already existing recordings that Denny was somehow able to get his hands on for personal use. 
We do mention this in the live segment again, but I do believe Denny having access to these songs for this album seems like a consolation prize for him, or like, you know, a, a gesture of good faith on the part of MPL, so that he isn't left with absolutely nothing after the breakup. You know, Paul being like, oh yeah, you know, just let him have his songs, you know. And the first of those songs was I Would Only Smile, which was recorded during the Red Rose Speedway sessions with Henry McCullough on lead guitar and Denny Sowell on the drums. In the liner notes, Denny says it was recorded around 73, but the history books show that it was actually recorded on Wednesday, the 22nd of March, 1972. It was released in 73. Then we have Send Me the Heart, which was that co-written track with Paul that I mentioned earlier. And it makes me wonder, actually, whether he got any money from this album. But yeah, it was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, with various country musicians, including Buddy Emmons on steel guitar and Paul on the bass, with none of the other Wings members actually playing, uh, except maybe Jeff Britton. Again, don't know. Also in the liner notes, Denny says that this was recorded in 73, but it was actually recorded on the 11th of July, 1974. And then you have the final one, which is Weep for Love, which was recorded during the Back to the Egg sessions with Lon Stuber on lead guitar and Steve Holly on the drums. It was recorded during the first leg of the sessions, which places it anywhere between the 29th of June and 27th of July, 1978. And there are also conflicting sources as to whether it was recorded at the Spirit of Rana Chan Studios or at Limpine Castle. Then we come to the first proper set of sessions for Japanese Tears, and they took place at Startling Studios, 1978. No specific date, just sometime in 1978. Unfortunately, folks, this is Denny Lane history and not Paul McCartney history, and so the specifics are always sadly vague. But at some point around 1978, like maybe in a period where a appropriate tour for London Town should have been, or maybe around the birth of James McCartney, Denny took some of his friends to Ringo's house to work on some songs. Uh, hang on a second, Sam. What did I hear you just say? Why did you just mention Ringo Starr? Well, folks, it turns out that Startling Studios is actually the home recording setup that Ringo Ritchie Starr had at his Titanus property. Rather like the when of these recordings, there are spuriously few details as to the how or the why Denny would be recording here of all places. Were he and Ringo close? Had he met through Paul? Were some of the other players that came close with Ringo. Did Paul set up the whole thing? Did Denny have to go through Paul to set something like this up? I mean, I kind of think it would be done through Paul, but I would say that, you know. Also, it is important to remember that there was no such thing as Japanese tears at this point, sometime in 78, and that the recordings were probably just Denny having a bit of fun making some music with his friends. Yes, we have talked about him potentially stocking up for the future, but there isn't a set plan at this point. Anyway, the songs they did record here at Startling Studios were Same Mistakes, Silver, Somebody Ought to Know the Way, Guess I'm Only Fooling, and Nothing to Go By. And when I say that all of these songs could be Ringo Starr album tracks, you know that that's not the biggest compliment. Okay, man, that's a little too harsh. I do like some of them. But yeah, that list of songs puts, by a lead of one, Ringo Starr's home studio as the place where the majority of the songs on this album, not just original songs either, were recorded. You know, 
And when you consider that the album has accusations of an inconsistent production quality, maybe they're talking about these songs specifically because the stuff in other sessions sounds great. And I'm sure old Richie has a banging setup. But the lack of a crew and technicians that I'm picturing in my head, this is all supposition, folks. But, you know, is Ringo going to have six engineers at his home studio or is it just going to be them messing about, you know? And I feel that, you know, a lack of a professional environment is what leads to that somewhat slapdash recording sound. You know, I bet it was fun to be there, but is it the best thing for the album? Then we come to a short little section where we find out that Denny also did some home recordings, again, around 1978, though I imagine there are many more throughout this period, which makes this yet another parallel with Mr. McCartney. You know, they really are abundant in this episode, aren't they? Anyway, Denny describes his setup as a Teak 8-track, which is technically twice as many tracks that the four-track Struder that Paul worked with for the McCartney album, and so Denny would be able to make some comparatively complex tracks from the comfort of his own home. Now, even though only one song was recorded during this period, I am now still reeling from the possibility of lost Denny Lane home recordings. That'd be a great thing to come out in like a Denny Lane box set or something like that. And if they date from, say, 1972 to 1980, then you're damn right I am extra interested in them. Anyway, the one song that Denny recorded at home in this period that made it onto the album was Danger Zone. And finally, for the last batch of songs, we have all the stuff that was 100% recorded after the Japan bust and around the breakup of Wings. You know, they've broken up functionally, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, even in the liner notes, Denny directly addresses the period because he says the title track was recorded after, and I quote, the arrest of PM in Tokyo. Clearly he wasn't allowed to address Paul by name, and I hope people didn't think he meant the Prime Minister. But yeah, this is all around that time. And where does Denny go with this new material? Well, the answer would be with the now sadly defunct Rock City Studios. It was a very new record company being set up only the year before, and it was located in Surrey here in the UK, up north. And around this time, the time Denny was working with them, they were helping to record acts like Gary Newman, Peter Green and Whitesnake. Now, I'll get into this in the live segment, but Japanese Tears has a lot of ambitious moves from Denny in terms of production, and it's way more out there and aspiring and enthusiastic. And it is here where he finally gets to, you know, get into that and express that he's in a proper studio now. He can do proper songs and all of the songs that have the best production are the ones recorded here at Rock City Studios. This is where Denny makes most leaps in terms of his sound and made the two best songs on the album as far as I'm concerned. But you know, I won't say which just yet. Now, even though this is one location and one city, one rock city, there does seem to be two distinct phases of the Rock City Studios recordings. The first seems to be the earliest days of the post-Wings breakup, where it's pretty much just Denny, Steve and Jojo doing the recording. And then we have the second half, whereby it's the Denny Lane band. They're the ones who come in and do those two recordings. So, it's again, it's not all one go. It wasn't like, you know, one day or anything like that. But Denny clearly, clearly had time at Rock City Studios. And in between sessions, he also formed a band and then brought all of them along. 
The songs they recorded at Rock City Studios in 1980 were Japanese Tears, whose string arrangements were done by a man called Ian Hayter. There was Clock on the Wall, which had no other musicians involved bar Denny. Then we have Go Now and Say You Don't Mind with the Denny Lane Band. And then there is Lover's Light. And now that we have the music locked down, it is all recorded. It is ready to be pressed onto Vaughn. But we still need a sleeve, some artwork to express the themes of this album, to draw in the punters, to catch their eye, to visually represent all of this. And so we will now discuss the album artwork. And honestly, even after that pomp there to build it all up, there really isn't all that much to discuss here. Uh, we do mention it in the live part, but... The image itself here is very boorish indeed. It is just a high contrast black and white image with a picture of Denny with his guitar and a superimposed Japanese geisha looking figure in the foreground. To be honest, I'm not interested in spending all that much time discussing this one. Overall, just, just the cover, the image is far too dark and uninteresting and it doesn't reflect the album at all like you know this isn't metallica's black album this isn't like paul's driving rain where it's meant to like show something dour and sad you know these are all quite bright and chirpy little pop songs like i don't know why there's not something with more color and expression and joy here i mean the image of denny uh, makes him look completely uninterested and uninteresting the inclusion of that japanese lady is corny at best and kind of in poor taste at worst what is worse though is that the image of denny on the front seems to have been taken from a previous photo session or like a live show or anything or not anything freshly shot for the album um, which only adds to that kind of cheap slapdash feel i mean I'm sure I've seen that 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 image before. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, folks, it is no surprise that a cover that is as dark and uninteresting and uninspired as this failed to connect with people and make them pick it up off the shelf. You know, you can have albums that may not have sold all that much otherwise, but if they've got something that, that, that forces you to pick it up, you know, just to look at it for a second, you really increase your chances of being bought astronomically. And, you know, this cover just reflects boring post-wings Denny. That's what it looks like. Although, and we do get to this in the live portion as well, and I would recommend that you check out the Patreon video version of this episode so you can see what we talk about here. But the rear of the album is far more interesting, as it has a 3 by 3 set of photos, in a very hard day's night kind of way, which feature Denny and Jojo, and it is charming, it is cute seeing, seeing them together like that. And it, just one of those images would have made for a far better cover. Actually, just as an aside, the only interesting fact about this cover is that the photographer slash designer, uh, a man by the name of Dezo Hoffman, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what he actually took the photo of. I mean, he definitely took the photo of the geisha figure and maybe he did the collage for the cover and put it all together. But yeah, whatever he shot, whatever he did, he was also a guy who actually did a bunch of photos uh, and covers for, uh, you know, those European market Beatles EPs from the early 60s. Like, they weren't really sold in the UK and America, but there'll just be like four songs on them with titles like I Saw Her Standing There and Long Tall Sally, and there'll just be three other songs. So, you know, there's always a connection to the Beatles, folks. 
this Dazer Hoffman was quite old by by this point, and his best work was certainly behind him. But you can definitely go onto like Discogs, and you will see that this guy's taken photos of so many famous people, and was clearly a very present name in the scene. Denny probably got him at a nice discount rate, maybe. Anyway, after all of that, Denny Lane's third solo album, or first, if you want to think about it technically, because the first one was kind of released without his involvement, and Paul kind of released Holidays concurrently with him. I don't know. Depending on your point of view, whatever. This album, Japanese Tears, was finally released on the 6th of December, 1980. This was about 11 months since the drug bust and about three months until the group's final disillusion. There were three singles released to promote the album, those being Go Now, backed with Say Don't Mind, Japanese Tears, backed with Guess I'm Only Foolin', and Send Me the Heart, backed with Clock on the Wall. Now, how well did this album go down with the public? Well, folks, this is normally the part of the episode where I go through all the sales information for the album and the singles, but... Once again, the sad fact of the matter is is that this is not Paul McCartney history, this is Denny Lane history, and therefore these records are simply not kept. However, if this had sold exceedingly well, I feel like it would be far more spoken about in the general zeitgeist of things. I feel like people would know about this album. And, you know, bar Chloe Costello recording her actual vinyl version of this album there's none of it on youtube it's not on streaming it's you know it's buried it's obscure i don't know why it's not on streaming maybe it would cost more than they'd get in the revenue back but you know it would it would drum up some publicity for denny but yeah i think it's safe to say that outside of a few wings diehards this album didn't sell very well at all I mean, I don't know why it took him 11 months, like nearly a year to put it out. Like maybe if he'd released it closer to the drug bust, like if he had written Japanese Tears and got those other, you know, three or four songs recorded and maybe it would have, you know, sold a bit better then, like really caught the hype. Maybe he just released it at the wrong time. But yeah, this didn't sell. You don't see it in secondhand shops anywhere. Copies on eBay are quite expensive and it's a shame really it would have been nice if Danny had had a bit of a cash influx at the end of Wings and that maybe would have inspired a bigger tour or something like that but as we're going to get into in the live segment perhaps there are also quality issues with the album as to why it didn't connect with people but not all is lost in the absence of other data Um, to find out how this album did. We do have some other side information that I thought would be quite interesting to go into. And it was this phrase from the Wikipedia article that struck a chord with me. And it reads, This album has been reissued several times under a variety of titles on an assortment of labels. And so I thought, how many versions of Japanese Tears could there be? Well, folks, it turns out a whole lot. Starting off, we have... Japanese Tears, released in 1980 on Polydor Records in Denmark and Norway. Then there was a separate Japanese Tears, released in 1980 on Scratch Records in the United Kingdom. And finally, in 1980, there is an album called Go Now, uh, released on Global Records in Germany. Now, right away, I think it's very interesting that there's no American pressing for Japanese Tears. Maybe they couldn't afford to do it. Maybe no one wanted to buy it and publish it themselves. That's a shame. 
I mean, if he'd have put this out around the time of, you know, like if this was a swift follow-up to Holidays or something, then maybe he would have had a bit more marquee value. But it's clear that the moment Wings are done, no one's interested in Denny. It's such a shame. And it only reinforces those negative stereotypes of Wings just being Paul's backing band. Like, this is part of the proof of the pudding, I guess. Then we move to 1981, a release on Peerless Records in Venezuela called Denny Lane, Paul McCartney and Friends. Now that's the most blatant use of Paul's name to get away with flogging a record, but hey, it's in Venezuela, I guess they'll get away with whatever copyright laws they may or may not be breaking. Then... In 1984, the album was re-released on Breakaway Records here in the UK under the title of In Flight. It was also called In Flight the same year on Bravo Records in Hungary. And clearly people were rather enamoured with this name for this album. Uh, It's a great wings pun, I'm sure. But a third In Flight came out in 1991 on Planeta de Agostini Records in Spain in 1992 on... Taichiku Records in Japan, we have Japanese Tears, we've, got, we've gone back to Japanese Tears. Then another new title, we have Danger Zone being released in 1995 on Laserlight Records, I believe that was worldwide. Then back to Japanese Tears again, we have Japanese Tears being released in 2005 on Indie Records in Brazil. And finally, we have on Lilith Records in Europe, <laughs> we've gone back to In Flight again, that was released in 2000. And eight. So I think we're all due again for another release of Japanese Tears. Which title do you think we should go with? Japanese Tears, Go Now, Denny Lane, Paul McCartney and Friends, In Flight, Danger Zone. Which one? Maybe we should pick a new one like Silver or um, Clock on the Wall, something like that. Yeah, come on. Denny, get off your arse son. We need at least three more versions of this album. And do it on vinyl. Coloured vinyl, multiple coloured vinyls. Let's get in on Paul's action here. Anyway, we're going to start wrapping things up now just before the live interview segment. And it's always at this point we discuss the reception for the album. You know, how well did it do? We've learned all about it and now we need to find out what everyone else's opinions were before we go into, you know, mine and Chloe's. Unfortunately... Again, with this being Denny Lane history, not Paul McCartney history, there are no print reviews available for this album on the internet. They have not been saved and stored and catalogued thusly. And so I didn't panic. I thought, okay, well, I'll look at user reviews. And there was only one decent review online that I could find. So let's just read that one. This is user big underscore pimpin, big pimpin, on rateyourmusic.com. And they say, repackaged and recycled countless times with countless track arrangements, titles and album covers, 1981's Japanese Tears is, to my knowledge, the original. But like the legion of reissues and compilations that followed, this one still comes across like a collection as opposed to a unified album. But the fact remains, this was the first proper artist-sanctioned solo album of Denny Lane's actual post-Wings career. A lot was hanging on its success, and he compromises some of the offhand charm of R Lane and Holidays for an album that, in many ways, comes across as a very calculated effort at maximising appeal to the Wings-slash-Moody-Blues audience. In that sense, it can be seen as his resume to the world. 
For starters, it contains re-recorded versions of Go Now and Say You Don't Mind, his most famous pre-Wings recordings. Also, it contains a whole slew of Wings outtakes with laying on vocals, recorded at various stages in the band's career. Semi the Heart is a throwaway country song recorded with Wings in Nashville in 74, the same sessions that spawned Junior's Farm and Sally G. It's the only McCartney Lane songwriting collaboration on the album, but so what? Personally, I think it's really bad. I Would Only Smile, on the other hand, is a marvellously catchy little ditty, recorded for the proposed Red Rose Speedway double album. Weep for Love, dating back from the Back to the Egg sessions, might have been too pastoral and folky for that album, but it's a fine song with great backing harmonies by Paul and Linda McCartney. It's definitely worth checking out if you liked Mull of Kintyre. The new material is generally of even quality, with no epic highs, but no real filler either. Japanese Tears, a statement on Paul's arrest in Japan that halted any future plans with Wings, incorporates elements of actual Japanese music, but it's only mildly tuneful and a bizarre choice for a single. It seems Denny wasn't using his gift of melody to its full potential on these songs. Tracks like Clock on the Wall, Danger Zone and Nothing to Go By come really close to five-star territory, but all fall flat in odd, subtle ways. That said, the only low point for me is Same Mistakes, featuring Denny's wife Jojo on the vocals. It is hokey and contrived. I get it, the whole husband and wife appearing on the same song thing is supposed to be cute, but seriously, who buys a Denny Lane album to hear someone else singing? Ironically, he would make the same mistake on the Hometown Girls album down the road, but that's another story. So, as far as Denny Lane albums go, it's a shame that this one, and the material from it, is so frequently recycled, whilst lesser-heard albums like R Lane, the superior, in my estimation, Anyone Can Fly, and not to mention everything from his stint with President Records, all of that remains out of print. But... Ultimately, it's a good companion piece to Wings albums. It's just a shame that the real highlights are old songs recorded anew. That, to me, takes away a lot of the overall experience. Wow, Big Pimpin', I really couldn't have put that any better myself. What a very concise summation of the album. It really does kind of invalidate the fact that we're now going on to a rather long conversation where we touch on all of those points and more. Of course, we touch on more. But yeah, now we are done with all of the backstory for this album. We know what one person in the world thinks about this album. It is now time for us to move on to the live segment where I bring on my wonderful guest. I'm going to introduce her now. One, two, three. Let's cut to the live feed. Another ex-Beatle, Paul McCartney, is stepping up his own security. This means his band, Wings, won't be touring. It's led to one of its members, Midland-born Denny Lane, to quit. Denny shot to fame in the early 60s with the Moody Blues and a song that's become a pop classic. We've already said... Denny joined Wings as Paul McCartney's right-hand man and co-wrote some of the Wings material. But now Denny's in the driving seat of a new venture, a new band. He's busy recording an LP, 
and Jeff Mead have been along to find out what pressures led to the break with wings. When we were doing our last tour in America, there was um, the security everywhere. I mean, all the we took a whole floor of a hotel. I mean, there's and I didn't even realise it at the time, but he'd, he'd had threats then. Did he ever talk to you about about the fears he might have felt when he was up there on stage and not knowing who could be out there in the audience? Oh yeah. I mean, these are sort of dressing room stories that have been going on for 15 years, you know. I mean, I've known Paul uh, for 15 years, and we're still great mates, you know, always will be. But as I say, it's mainly because he's he's a studio person. Um, Some of the reports, I mean, particularly the reports about the days of the Beatles, suggest that he, he is at times a difficult man to get on with. Did you ever find that? Well, I've had my um, moments. Yeah, he's, we're, every musician's difficult to get on with, you know. I mean, he's a perfectionist. <laughs> it's, that's the, what it's all about, you know. Fine. Denny, good luck with your new career. <laughs> See ya. A philosophical Denny Lane. Look forward to hearing the new band there. Okay, folks, we are now here in the live segment of the show where we're going to get into the album itself. And when I say we, of course, I do mean we, not the royal we. I'm not going to be doing this one alone. Back from her last two appearances on this show where we covered Our Lane, Denny's first solo album slash album that technically wasn't his first album, but that's a long story. Go check out that episode, as well as her take on the Got Back Tour. Everyone, please welcome back to the show, Paul McCartney fan, Denny Lane super fan, and YouTuber, Chloe Costello. Chloe, what's going on? Sam, it's great to see you. It's been a little while, so I'm glad we could finally get together and, you know, do this podcast. I'm really looking forward to this. It has been a while. No, uh, I really enjoyed your uh, Got Back take, and I know that you've actually got future live gigs that are very relevant to this episode we're doing today. I've heard on the grapevine slash scene on social media that you are going to go see Denny Lane not once but twice in the near future. What's happening there? Yeah, I'm seeing him two nights in a row. He's coming to Illinois, so whenever he's around, I usually go to every show that I can realistically get to. So I'm seeing him on the 18th and 19th next month, so mm-hmm. that'll be a double Denny Lane weekend, so that'll be fun. And he's doing his songs and stories tour, which is honestly for me a relief because I'm a little bit tired of hearing the band on the run all the way through and then the Moody Blues, Magnificent Moody's all the way through because that's that's normally what he's been doing. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty refreshing that he's doing this acoustic solo thing. Oh, wow. He's kind of doing what everyone kind of wants Paul to do with his stuff, really. That's quite that's that's quite interesting. (laughs) Okay. Um, do you, how ridiculously far do you have do you have to travel? I mean, is it a, a, another nine hour drive or is it pretty close? No, I'm actually really lucky. The closer one is about fifteen minutes from my house, and the further one's about half an hour. So he's <laughs> wow. like right to my front door, basically. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who listened to the Got Back special episodes will know that that is a pretty short trip indeed for both for most people actually wanting to go see Paul live. If, if it was fifteen minutes away, that'd be insane. Are you going to be going in costume for this? Like, what would the <laughs> what would the Denny Lane costume be? Maybe like the the, the tri corner hat and the drum from that uh, from, from from that Wings Over the uh, America gig, maybe. I don't know. 
oh yeah, I'll just strap a whole snare drum to myself and show up front row. No, I've got my custom made Betty Lane shirts that I usually <laughs> wear one day <to> show. <laughs> Represent. <laughs> Maybe you could go as him from the uh, Good Night Tonight video, like with the little swirl. There you go, yeah. Yeah, I think I'll it would have to be that. For that. Does he wear anything funny in the Mary Had a Little Lamb video, or is it just a white outfit? Hmm. Which video? I mean, there's so there's, many of them. There's I'm 17. There's one where he's in like, like a jester outfit, I think. The one certain <laughs> video where Paul is the clown nose, and they have the horse that just appears. Oh, you could go as him on the um, Junior's Farm album cover, uh, single sleeve as well. That that could be quite fun as well. How many times have you seen him before? I'm, I'm not sure if I asked you that on the last time. Danny? Yeah, 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 I didn't. Yeah. That's actually a good question. I haven't really kept count. I actually tried to count it up the other day. So I've seen him somewhere between 14 and 15 times. Okay. Um, so a, a decent amount, yeah. I, I've seen him all over the country. <laughs> and so you, 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 you just mentioned that this new tour is quite refreshing. Has he been a bit like Paul over the years where he's kind of had a set set list, as it were, like songs he plays, like, I mean, I would not be shocked to hear that he plays Go Now every time, as well as all of uh, you know all of the more well-received Wings hits that he uh, he was a part of as well. He probably sings Mull of Kintyre because he helped co-write that one. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, he's it 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 varies. He's got a few different things that he does. So, like, if you think of different set lists that he might pull, like when he does Beatles Bests, he'll usually play a set amount. Of, he'll play like Blackbird and Go Now, you know that stuff. He was doing a tour that I mentioned before. The It was like called the Band on the Run slash Magnificent Moody's tour where he was playing both albums straight through and then a couple like Go Now and Say You Don't Mind, his other hits at the end, he would just tackle on there. Um, he's, he did this Songs and Stories tour in 2018 too. And I mean, personally, it was by far my favorite. I got to hear, I think he played Baby Caroline from Ah Lane. He did like a little teaser of like anyone could fly. Pretty much it's, it, you can yell out whatever. And if he knows how to play it, he'll play it. So yeah, it, it's a pretty flexible set list, I think. I mean, he's still going to do go now and say you don't mind, but that's just mm. a necessary evil of seeing Danny Lane. No, because I remember when I was talking to one of my friends, Andrew Brooks, he was talking about how when he saw Denny, like he was at, this was like in the mid 80s, and he had to like remind him of loads of his songs. So, I'm guessing, you know, maybe like Paul, there was at some point, you know, in the 90s where Denny went back and listened to Our Lane and Japanese Tears, like we're going to talk about here here today. Um, not that he's going to get anyone to, to do something like Same Mistakes or anything like that these these days, thankfully not. But yeah, uh, if you if you do get a quick chance to bump into Denny, make sure that you waste the opportunity and just plug this show. That if you could do that, as absolutely. Well. Yeah, if I get a chance, you got it. <laughs> Oh, Chloe, how are you? Uh, no, no, Denny, don't. No, I just want to talk about Paul or nothing, please. No, no. <laughs> also, um, just, just before we go right into it as well, I will acknowledge that, unfortunately, folks, we've uh, already done holidays on the podcast. I'd, I, I'd done that with the aforementioned uh, Andrew Brooks years before we did the R Lane episode, but I thought it was only fair that I might give you your chance to give your two cents on that covers album. How does Holidays rank for you in Denny's discography? So to be completely honest, it's not like it's one of my favorites. Overall, it's an enjoyable album for sure. It's mm. the first solo Denny album I ever heard. For mm. those who are listening, I just did some air quotes because the reality of the album is that Paul McCartney, I think in Scotland, he recorded it all for backing tracks by himself. 
And then I think Denny was working on another project. So when he was able to get up there, he was able to add on. He uh, overdubbed his vocals. And I think he had a little bit of guitar, maybe some other things as well. But really, it's a Paul and Denny album. It's not a solo album by any means. He's just on the lead vocal, which is great. So I heard it early on as a Denny Lane fan where my main goal was just, I just wanted to hear more songs with Denny on lead vocal. So I didn't really, mm-hmm. I was going to listen to anything. So back then I used to listen to it a lot. But uh, once I found all his other albums, it's certain, it kind of just sunk down for me. And again, by no means do I dislike it. It's kind of thrown together. It feels like in some places, like kind of slapdash, but I get, I don't fault it for that either. Cause I think it's just, Paul and Denny having some fun with some Buddy Holly covers, but it's just, it's not my favorite. I'm not crazy about it, but it has its place and it makes for like good Sunday listening, just popping on the record player. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I totally get that. Um, I actually discovered it uh, first as well in terms of solo, solo Denny. Uh, I found a fan of the show sent me a, a vinyl copy, which I was very, very pleased with indeed. And it kind of forms a, the perfect trifecta for me where I'll put on Denny Lane's Holidays, uh, Lennon's Rock and Roll and Chobber by McCartney. And those three are just this perfect like sampling of 50s rock and roll and this kind of music that inspired that generation. I really do enjoy it. For me, it's probably my favourite of the three. I re- you know, I, I can just put it on. It's, it might even be under half an hour. It might just be like 28 minutes of just pure bliss for me. And it comes and goes. It doesn't outstay its welcome. Uh, I really do think it's very, it's very charming. Hopefully one day we'll get it available on streaming. Hopefully we'll get the whole Denny Lane package on streaming one day. It's, it's a shame that, you know, we have to go on your YouTube page. That's like literally the only place where I can listen to hard to uh, half, half of this stuff. It's uh... I think somebody else did post this one. Their name's like Cherry Grove something. <laughs> I didn't get to this one, but yeah, no, I agree with you. I think this deserves a remaster that, that would really bring it out, I think, and help it shine a little bit more. But that, yeah, it, it's like, it's not to say, I, I think good things came out of it too, because I love the music videos for Heartbeat and Moon Dreams. <laughs> I mean, those alone are just fantastic. Moon uh, Dreams, all the fake snow falling there's down. There's something, all right. There's something. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's definitely got its fun stuff. And I like the little chipmunk sound too. That's a highlight for me. You know yeah. what I mean? I think on Take Your Time at the end when they go all high pitch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think we'll just play a clip of that now. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> That album is, it's so pure and wholesome for me. And it's a shame that the archive re-release box sets weren't as ambitious as they are now. Because I, I really feel like if you'd have slapped Holidays on the uh, Wings at the Speed of Sound box set, that really could have that really could have been something quite special. And, you know, it would have been cool to get just a, a Denny thing on one of those. But uh, I don't think Paul would ever allow that, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, that would be the dream, I'd say. <laughs> one day. <laughs> it really, yeah, like, I think uh, I think a lot of the fans were like, "Oh, really, a Denny Lane album?" But then, you know, I think I think it would win over more more people in the end. I think once they hear it, you're bound to like it. Like, it's hard to not like it when you hear it. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it doesn't have a lofty ceiling. It's not trying to be something really great. It's just Buddy Holly covers, and if you and if you like the sound of that, yeah, it's pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could also have like maybe like something like the Paul McCartney seven inch collection. We have like a Denny Lane box set of R Lane, Holidays, and Japanese Tears, like the three albums that are probably the quote unquote the most important because they're connected to Paul and Wings and that. Do, do you reckon enough people would actually buy something like that to ever warrant it? I mean, it probably would have come out already if enough people would buy it, I guess, is the point. 
Um, honestly, I, I yeah, you're probably right. I don't know how much of a market there really is out there. I think it's marketable. Um, they would definitely have to slap Paul's name all over it, which honestly, I, I hate when they do that because I I want Denny to get the spotlight for his albums. You know, I want him to get the respect he deserves, but it's hard because nobody's going to listen to it if it doesn't say Paul McCartney up front. You know, all of the trailers have him singing "Go Now" as well. You know, it's a you know make it as mm-hmm. lowest common denominator. Or like that one clip from Time to Hide or from Rock Show of him playing Time to Hide. That's always what they use to advertise everything. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, now that we've discussed everything other than Japanese tears, I guess we should move on to this 1980 release. So you say that you came across Holidays quite early on. Was this the next album you discovered? And without giving anything away, have your opinions on it changed at all much since you first heard it? Yeah. So it was the second album I discovered mm-hmm. when I was first diving into Denny's solo catalog. Of course, because it's you know connected to Paul and Wings, so it's it's really easy to make the little leap from Wings oh, yeah, to yeah, Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Super easy. But yeah, um, I was intrigued about it right off the bat when I, when I heard about it. I wanted to know what it was, so I that's when I had to seek out on vinyl to hear the full thing. Um, I couldn't find the full album posted anywhere online or mm-hmm. on any. I couldn't even torrented anywhere it was just nowhere there um i'm jumping the gun here but there's like there's some of it on youtube and i was for years i couldn't figure out what that was because it's kind of all convoluted and we'll get into that Mm -hmm. but yeah pretty much it was a very formative album for me as a denny lane fan i think it's really a good way if you're not sure if you want to actually listen to denny lane solo stuff you still have you know a little bit of paul mccartney holding your hand as you step into the new stuff and Mm -hmm. it's enjoyable overall my thoughts on it have and haven't changed. Um, as I got older and learned more about the background of the album itself and certain individual tracks that helped them to grow on me a little bit. Some of them I liked right off the bat um, and some definitely took some time. Overall now, though, I'd say it's, it's a pretty solid album. It's not one I come to all the time. Actually, listening, listening to it for this podcast is the first time I've listened to it in quite a while. Mm-hmm. But it was very pleasant. You know, it was really, really refreshing and I like it a lot. It is quite similar to Our Lane, though, in the sense that it is a collection of previously written, like, written songs that have never been committed to tape yet. I mean, do you think that this was Denny's, like, in his head, his version of All Things Must Pass? You know, I've been repressed all these years. I'm finally going to get a, a chance to express myself, you know? Yeah, and I've seen it compared to All Things Must Pass before. It was pretty funny. I mean, yeah. in a way, I'm sure it was. I know he, he, Denny's expressed in interviews that he felt like he was putting his solo career on the back burner. And so I guess this was a good opportunity for him to, you know, take a leap and start being a solo artist again, because he mm-hmm. hadn't really done that while he was in Wings very much, really at all, mm-hmm. to be honest. So, yeah, yeah. I just lost my train of thought. Sorry, Sam, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, we, we were just talking about how this is his All Things Must Pass. Oh, we'll edit this. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so yeah, it's definitely, it's a bit eclectic, you could say, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he, there's definitely tracks from here and there. And to me, I almost feel like he might have, it, not filler necessarily, but there were tracks he was able to use that hadn't been released, you know, so mm-hmm. he could stick them on the album and get something out that also does include some of his own cheer solo work mixed in with the other stuff. I would say that it does feel more cohesive than our lane, though. It does feel more like an album. I think Side 2 definitely has a kind of actual album structure. It does feel like a, a proper Side 2, and it rises and it falls quite well. I guess um, 
uh, side one's a little more scattershot and all over the place, but that might just be down to the quality of the songs, which we'll get to uh, shortly. But, in the, you know, I th- what I was quite taken aback by with this album was just how ambitious it was, like the style and genre and arrangements that Denny goes for isn't just rock and roll and blues songs. We actually get quite the, the breadth on this. I think there's only like three, maybe four straight up rock and blues tracks on this were you surprised by Denny's sound progressing in this way? And does it continue to progress or does it regress after this album? So I personally am not surprised by it at all. Reason being, I think one of the big things that cha- that you could say changes his sound, especially from Wings on this album, is the fact that he brings in a string quartet for some of the songs. Mm-hmm. But I think that's actually a direct extension of what he was doing pre-Wings when he was in the electric string band. I think he was always wanting to amp up like a violin and a cello and play rock and roll style with these classical instruments. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's it's him finishing what he started like over 10 years prior, like 67 when he was doing the electric string band. So I, I think it's definitely ambitious and, but I wouldn't say it to me. It was surprising. I actually find it kind of, what's the word for it? Like fulfilling that he find that, Mm-hmm. He did get that string quartet, and we've got it going here on this album. It's some album tracks like that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a solid sound he's got overall, and relatively, it's pretty cohesive. I'm going to be saying this on quite a few of the songs, but it also does sound like Paul has rubbed off on him in certain ways, just in the way that certain songs go, how they progress, how they might go to a bridge and then back in a certain way or a certain harmony. You know, it does feel very post-Wings in that sense. And, you know, it is a perfectly good transitionary album for any solo artist. You know, if every solo artist could do that, you know. Oh, by the way, four or five tracks from the album are actually unreleased band tracks. You know, it it does help kind of soften the blow for uh, those Denny Lane fans who were really into Wings. The production. Yeah, you've got Steve Holly pretty much across the whole album. So that helps for sure. And, you know, a lot of Paul backing vocals. There's a definitely a, a Ringo-esque uh, Denny Lane and Friends vibe, you know what I mean? Because you've, mm-hmm. you've got Howie, you've got Thaddeus on this. It's a shame no one else was on it. You would have thought maybe Lawrence Juba might have been or or any of the other previous guitarists. You know, I'm sure Jeff Britton would have loved some work at this time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I do think that that's one of the album's great strengths. It's not that he relies on a lot, on a lot of the previous players but they do objectively come in and kind of unblandify a lot of the songs in places where it needed unblandifying i guess is the correct word uh, the correct phrase for it but you know they do elevate the material thusly and uh, gives it a lot more texture than just again blues and rock blues and rock we do get so many cool little moments on here with like flutes and strings and horns and synths and synth horns it's it's all very quite uh, impressive before I forget as well, before we get onto the individual songs, let's talk about the album artwork. It's a it's a composite image. Like the the, the image of Denny surely has to be from like seventy six or something, right? I'm not actually sure when that photo was taken because there's a couple alternate photos of the album, hmm. and I'm not sure. That's actually a really good question. I would have to look into that. But yeah, it, it looks like 76-ish, I would think. But I've I've seen a few photos of him and Jojo from that time, like a couple different mm-hmm. iterations of the album cover. So I'm just not sure, to be honest. Now, um, there's there's also the image of 
the lady in the Camino. She looks like a geisha type on, on the front cover. I'm sure it'll continue to not age well in the future. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'd say a few things on this album may not have aged that well, but... No, uh, but yeah, that's one of the many things that will be a, a parallel to another album that I'm going to bring up shortly. It's a bit of a bland cover. It's a bit dark. I think maybe something a little uh, brighter and eye-catching might have been better here. It does make out that the album might be a bit more maudlin and bleak than it actually is, because it's, it's quite it's quite an, an upbeat album, bar the, the opening track. It's a weird one. Oh, what's what's on the inside? I've never seen the... Oh, I was going to say, this is actually, I was going to say, I think the back cover actually offers a lot more than the front cover. It's kind Ooh. of trying to get the clear away, but you get a set of nine photos of Denny and Jojo, and I, I think they're pretty nice, actually. I think one of these would have been a good cover, too. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of those yeah. would have totally been there. But yeah, overall, you have a good point. The album's very dark, and you can't really tell what you're looking at always at first glance. I do note that it says it says Denny Lane dot 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 and friends on the cover. Steve <laughs> Holly, Jojo Lane, Paul and Linda, Henry McCulloch, and Denny S posted here. So can't miss that part. <laughs> I mean, that record company must be so happy just to write Paul and Linda McCartney on there. Definitely, definitely helps the sellability of this of this record. You know. Until all of the archive re-releases came out, this is the only way you could have heard something like I Would Only Smile or any of the four Wings era tracks. Uh, you know, unless you got bootlegs. But, you know, I know that if I was alive in those days, I would never have gotten bootlegs. That would definitely not be something I'd be doing, Wing Wing. But yeah, let's move on to side A, track one. We're going to start off simply enough with the title track, a.k.a. Japanese Tears. opinions both sides of the story when it comes to the breakup of Wings. you know paul being his obscured self only references the whole japan incident in the title of the song frozen japanese i'm not going to say the song's an original title anymore but you know that song could definitely be seen as an expression of paul's thoughts on the whole incident denny however does indeed have direct lyrics and he i mean just him doing that at all the prospect of that for me was always going to make it inherently one of the most interesting denny lane songs ever this is his venting of emotion here does it make it a good song not particularly i'm really not drawn to this one at all i do find it quite standoffish uh, it's definitely not one of the best things on the album at all but still it's more interesting as a piece of trivia than as a song for me personally which is something i say a lot on this show but chloe how effective do you think Denny is at 
airing his grievances here. Is this is, is this proud or is this just a little bit catty? You know. I think it's, it's he's completely justified in being a little bit frustrated, and I don't think he's really direct. I, I've seen a lot that this is like a dig at Paul or something like that, and I don't really think it is. I think it's more so his own, just as you were saying, it's his side of the story, his take, and it's more about the fans, the Japanese fans, than oh, Paul's situation itself. You know, um, I think it's nice. The message behind the song, I think, is nice. Where he's, you know, feeling bad for letting everyone down after all the waiting, after all the years, as he says. So, yeah, I mean, I don't hate it. It grew on me. I, I think the vocal isn't my favorite, but it's one that I've learned to enjoy. You know, it, it, they all grow on me at some point, so I'm a little biased. But I mean, yeah, I I, I found it interesting. I was watch, um, watching some interviews about this. And so we have Denny on the lead vocal, of course, mm-hmm. Jojo on the backing vocal. This is one of the track, the tracks that has a string quartet on it. Mm-hmm. Denny overdubbed a whole bunch of other instruments, but they also did bring in a koto, which I had to look up. That's a Japanese string instrument that kind of looks like a long wooden log, sort of like a sitar. Yes, yes. So they hired a professional player to come in and play that as well. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's okay. I know in the Take It Away podcast, Denny did an interview and he described it as the long version of what happened in Japan, basically telling the story of a young fan's reaction about the cancellation of the tour. That's really good. I don't really have anything too negative to say. It's, it's not my go-to easy listening piece, but I think it. I think he, he vented somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the decision to make the song be from the perspective of these grieving Japanese fans who can't get to see Wings. I think there's quite a bit of a sneaky, sneaky play here because, you know, maybe Denny knows that if he wrote a song saying, I'm upset, Paul wouldn't really care that much. But if he wrote a song saying, Paul's let down the fans, that might strike at his heart in a different way. This could be a bit of a a little bit of bitchiness from Denny here, you know. (laughs) I mean, it is more subtle than Lavatory Lil, but... It's clear that Denny was very upset by this whole thing. I, I mean, I would have thought the best reaction to not being able to play live, you know, and being trapped in the studio all the time would have been Denny uh, to have released a live album at, at this point. I feel like that would have been the grander statement. Um, it'd be nice to see if this track being done live as well would have maybe made it a little bit better. It would have been interesting to hear them do this one live. Um, I know it, there was a. I saw. He may very well. He might for you coming up. You know. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's a little lame to air one's dirty laundry open in public. I don't particularly like it when Paul does it, when John does it, when George does it. Uh, you know, it's all very interesting, and you know, it's great information to devour as a Beatle fan. But it's not the most compelling musical concept. I guess we would would be the best way to put it. You know, this song could use a little more claws to it, though, maybe. I'd kind of like it if it was a little more aggressive. Like, it's just, oh, Paul blames Den... Uh, you know, sorry, Denny blames Paul, and that's it, you know. I'd like some receipts, you know. You know, where are the, you know, you know, where are the skeletons in the closet, as it were? I don't know. I really, I really feel like this one isn't... It isn't a good album opener, for one. It's, it's okay. sequencing is, is poor. There are so many other songs on this album that would have been a much better introduction to this. Like I would, I would have buried this somewhere on like like the the third to last song or something like that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, the reason it's the, ti- the title track and opening track is because he wrote, so I think around June 1980 is when Denny released the single to go on to fall into line with when he was starting his Denny Lane Band solo tour. Mm-hmm. So I know, I think it was part of launching his solo tour and because I know this album didn't come out till that December. So I, I guess just because this was the inspiration for the album, they tacked it on as number one. I do agree, though. It's a little abrupt for an opening track. I think it'd be better somewhere else, for sure. Yeah. Not much more to say about this one. It's a bit of a letdown. I do find it quite funny in places. You know, it might it might become even more outdated than the front cover with that kind of... That, that very uh, stereotypical eastern field kind of <laughs> you know it almost feels like they're about to start going into turning Jap- japanese by the vapors at least denny hasn't outdone paul in the awful japanese references though paul still has the trophy on that one but let's go on to the second song and we have something for all of the top gun maverick fans out there this is danger zone Kenny Rogers has to worry too much about this track being the definitive track with Danger Zone in the title, but it still was a breath of fresh air compared to the opener, and I actually enjoyed it quite a lot. The track is in two parts, with the first part being this delightfully complex and layered composition, uh, with lots of promise for the future of the album, and the second half is like putting on an old pair of shoes, because it's right back to our previous kind of R Lane, Danny Lane kind of bluesy rocker. Uh, with a bit of a country feel a very enjoyable track overall i did find myself singing along you know danger zone at the end it definitely won me over quite quickly but Chloe, now that paul is free from just talking about the break of the wings and just doing a song how is he faring how do you like the first let's say proper song of this album i like this one a lot i think it's um simplistic yet very complex at the same time if that makes sense. it does it does yeah. Um, yeah yeah so i know this one was recorded there's some i'm not sure if you've seen the back cover but the back of the album does have some notes a little bit about each track so this one was recorded in 1979 at home on a teak 8 track with steve holly on drums and then denny overdubbed pretty much everything else and i i i always like steve holly's drumming so i think he adds a lot to it right there I like, uh, I think it's like a D minor intro. It gives like a really interesting kind of melodic mm. vibe. 
it's a very long intro. I always compare it to, I'm not sure if you know the song, I Need a Lover by John Mellencamp, but it has like a five minute okay, intro on there. Um, I'm definitely it's, checking that out. Not that long, but it makes me think of that. <laughs> You'll have to check that one out. Yeah. But I like, it's an enjoyable long intro, or as you were saying, it's like a whole first part, really. I like JoJo on the backing vocal, especially towards the second second half of the second part. So in the last portion of the song, I always like, they're not, I don't think they're harmonizing. I think they're exactly an octave apart. And that always gives it like a, just a different kind of airy feel. I, I don't know the exact word to describe it, but it, it's got an interesting feeling to it. I like how it, it bounces back and forth. There's a little chorus that's like, come and get it, come and get it. And it, it just breaks from the feel of the rest of the song where it almost feels like a different character singing it or something. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting song. I um but the song the second part is a little bit too short in my opinion. I feel like I sit through the whole long first part and then it's over. So yeah. I get that. I, um, that first half is a great example of Denny being a little more elaborate with his instrumentation and production, and that was a lot of fun for me to experience. Uh, you know, he's clearly a lot more confident as an arranger and producer having both done the electric string orchestra and wings now that's clearly showing here i mean although it is quite mccartney-ish in the way that it does kind of sound like two different songs stitched together but that probably isn't the case uh, and then you've got the second half of the song that has a fun bit of that that kind of country western feel it, it apes off that americana that we know denny loves so much it's it's simple it's charming that danger zone hook is admittedly very catchy and the best compliment I could give is, is that it's a, a better, more polished version of the material that we heard on our lane in that second part of the song, at least. I think that's an interesting comparison to make, definitely. Yeah, I see what you mean there. I, I could say the best compliment I could give it is, as you said, it's very catchy. It's just getting stuck in my head just sitting here talking about it. So <laughs> dangerous to listen to that one. All of my notes now just say, danger zone, danger zone. Just, that's all I can see. <laughs> Let's just quickly touch on Steve, though. Uh, Steve Holly is on this track. He's on a lot of this album. He's the back to the egg wings drummer. And why do you think Steve and Denny continued their relationship so quickly after the early wings breakup? period like do you think this was a friendship move did someone owe someone a favor was it financial what do you think's going on here um, to tell you the truth I, I, there's no way of knowing for mm. sure my impression that i get is that it's just a genuine friendship move I, I think they felt comfortable working together um it might have also been convenient i'm not sure where they were each logistically mm. living but i'd imagine there's an air of convenience to it for it working out for both of them as well i'm not what was I don't know exactly what Steve Holly was doing right after, right in 1980. So I'm not sure if this was, if he had other projects mm. going on, or maybe this was just the main project he wanted to take on, because he is on a lot of these tracks. Not that they're all recorded at that time, but. No, because um, I think, no. didn't Denny discover or did like hire Steve for the Back to the Egg lineup? So, you know. Yeah, I, I believe Denny is responsible for bringing in Steve. So that, that's why I think there, there's probably some kind of friendship there. Definitely. And I know Denny's known for going back and working with people he's worked with before. I think he'd like still work with people he knows. I'll definitely uh, type Steve Holly's name into Discogs later then and see what else he was, he was appearing on. It's funny, though, that uh, <laughs> Denny would still be going to things like the Tug of War sessions. and He's still friends with Steve Holly. And Steve's like, is Paul asking about me? Did Paul, did Paul mention me? And he's like, oh, gee, oh, geez. Uh, he's not said anything yet, but if he does, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, Steve. Okay, Debbie. Just goes and sits in the corner quietly. 
I think that's exactly how <laughs> I went down. Steve, if, if, if you're listening, I do apologize. Following on, and we now come to what can only be described as another Danny Lane song. This is Clock on the Wall. Don't ask me why I tell you why no stories I don't have to cry at all The price is so small Waiting here for you Though it takes a long time, maybe years Well, the faith I have won't let the tears fall With a clock on the wall Of course, Denny is quite the pianist. He does a lot of piano on Wings tracks, uh, on live Wings set lists. Uh, you know, his signature song is a piano-led tune that he always does whenever he gets the chance. I've seen him on like three talk shows doing that song in preparation for this episode. And it shouldn't be a surprise that he's quite competent when composing a song with this instrument. It is quite McCartney-esque in the same sense that it has that pep and jaunty Tin Pan Alley sound. Um, you know, quite a McCartney-esque riff maybe. And, you know, this is the first time when I you know, literally thought, oh, wow, he's definitely rubbed off on Denny here. There's a certain influence here. And it's ironic, you know, he's angry at Paul on this album, but I'm hearing so much of him through Denny here. Am I saying this is the best piano tune ever? No. Uh, you know, neither McCartney nor Billy Joel are going to be challenged here. But I will say he ain't done half bad. And I find it pretty enjoyable for what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty all right song. Um, what do you think of this almost obligatory uh, piano number here? Uh, do you hear the same McCartney influence as me? Yeah, there's def- I definitely think there's an air of McCartney influence in there. Um, overall, it, I, this is one of my favorite tracks on the album, to be honest. Okay. I, I really like that it's the only, I think it's the only one on the album where Denny does everything. Uh, it says right on the back, no other musicians are involved on this track. Mm-hmm. So it's all him. And um, I know this was recorded in 1980 at the same time as a couple other tracks here at the Rock Studio session, or Rock City Studio sessions they were doing. I noticed because I enjoy it so much that it's really short. It's like under two minutes and 28 yeah. seconds. The shorter, shortest track on the album. I like the, it, at first, I, I the song grew on me. At first, I thought the metronome going through the entire song was kind of annoying. It, but no, it is. Really it is annoying. It. No. You do hear a clock ticking, like, if you haven't heard the song, there is a metronome taking the entire song. But it, it helps because Denny's singing on the offbeat, so you actually end up with, it's kind of a cool ragtime song, I, I think, that would fall into that category. And I like the saloon piano thing, as you were mentioning. Uh, it sounds like he's in, like, a bar to me, so that's mm-hmm. nice. The song itself really reminds me of Don't Pass Me By by the Beatles. I don't know if it's the lyrical content where he's like waiting at home, staring at the clock, but it really makes me think of Ringo singing Don't Pass Me By. It's simple, but I don't mean that in a bad way at all. And Mm -hmm. as I said, yeah, it's one of my favorite tracks on the album. And I think it's the first time here, at least, Denny is really showing what he can do. And I think it's got a great melody. It is fun for what it is. It's one of the throwaways for me on the album. Again, not 
using throwaway as a slur or a put down. I'm just saying it just it it just feels a bit lightweight for me. I personally couldn't stand that metronome TikTok. It's distractingly <laughs> high up in the mix. Being uh, one of one of the 1980 songs as well, it it always puts the the, the idea in your mind of. Oh well, he could still have shown this to Paul. Was there ever a chance that this could have been on so and so? Like you know, I, I I imagine on many people's wings, tug of war, nineteen eighty two. They include clock on clock on the wall as track number three. You know, oh, that would be the best alternate universe. Get that yeah. on the archive collection. <laughs> <laughs> what what I do want to point out though is that Denny's going against type here. He really is surprising me so far in terms of this album because. We've not had a generic rock and roll blues track yet. We've not had him resting on his laurels yet. And I do think that he's actually pushing himself here. And it was quite interesting, actually. I did find myself quite compelled and interested to find out what the next track was going to be, even if there was the risk that it was just going to sound quite blasé like this. But that's just my opinion. Chloe seems to like it as well. One of her favourites on the album. Not sure what I think of that, but hey... Seems like we're always disagreeing here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, that's why I bring you on, you know, because you are going to temper my negative opinions, you know. I just think it's fun, you know, it's a fun <laughs> song to me. That's all. <laughs> well, let's let's move on to a song that undoubtedly helped sell the album for a certain swath of Wings fans. Well, one of four songs to do so, and. It's the fact that it's got Paul McCartney on it. This is Send Me the Heart. Recorded back in June of 74 when Wings were in Nashville, Tennessee, during the sessions that bore Junius Farm and Sally G. However, unlike other Wings songs on this album, uh, that was like either uh, re recorded or it, it, it was like never released and had an official take, this is uh, the actual Wings audio. It's really cool. It, it, it really adds a certain sense of value to me for this album. I've, I've always enjoyed this song for what it is and it's just a fun little rocker there's 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 nothing too complex with it denny certainly does the country sound a little more naturally than paul i'd say you know he kind of lives and breathes this material and it just comes off very natural it's perfectly pleasant it's likable is it my favorite thing on the album not particularly but i do not dislike it at all but yeah chloe tell me all about sending that so i 
this song, when I first heard it, I was just like, holy country, that's very country. Not that I didn't like it or anything. It's it's never been a favorite of mine, though, and I, and I also do like some country. This just struck me as it had to be from Nashville, and then I look it up and see that it was recorded right near Sally G, and that just made a lot of sense. Mm. It's got the same vibes as Sally G. I think it's interesting. So it's co-written by Paul, and we have Paul on bass. There's actually nobody else from Wings on this track. Everyone else is session musicians in Nashville, which I think is pretty neat. It changes it up a bit, gives you a bit mm. of a different feeling. Um, I hear a lot of skiffle and bluegrass in there too. Maybe it's just me, but it, it's it's not it's not straight country in a way. It's got a little bit more to it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it, it's kind of bland to me. Paul's harmony, his on backing vocal. I mean, he sounds great always, but I honestly find his vocal a little overpowering sometimes when I'm listening to it. Like if I'm if I was listening to a Wings album, I would love this. But if I'm opening up a Denny Wayne album, I just feel like it's getting overpowered by Paul's backing backing vocal a little bit. But at the same time, I was thinking yesterday, maybe I, maybe I should like this more because it is great. So there's a chance I'm just taking it for granted because I've heard it so many times. But to me, it's it's just not a favorite of mine at all. I could skip this one pretty easily. I do actually have quite the soft spot for it. Uh, I'd say it is superior to Sally G, and it probably should have been the B-side to Junior's Farm. There are, but, you know, I think with almost any Wings single, I would say use a Denny Lane song just because I want Denny Lane to have a bit more money and maybe the whole story goes a bit, uh, you know, well That's for a hot them. take, but I, I support that. Yeah, I, I do think it is a little bit better than Sally G, even though I do like Sally G as well. It would have been great as a B-side. I, I personally wouldn't have been surprised if that this was a cover of like a 1950s standard, you know, this is like a, a Carl Perkins track or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I quote-unquote don't do country, but, you know, it's still got a joyful rhythm. It's quite romantic. It's got a gorgeous guitar tone to it. Also, I can't not talk about the McCartney bass line. This is still a Paul McCartney podcast. Normally, Paul uses his other bandmate songs as a chance to create something really unique and dynamic on the bass. But yeah, Denny clearly wasn't going to get something as iconic as something or come together here. Though maybe that's just down to the genre more than anything. But yeah, um, Paul's really not pulling out all the stops for this Denny Lane tune here. No, I don't think there's... I wouldn't even know it was Paul on bass if I wasn't told just because it's it's a little bit bland for him. But mm. you know. But again, this could have easily have been on any of the B-sides for Venus and Mars the following year. Real shame that it that, that it wasn't, because that whole gang they had at these Nashville sessions really put out some high-quality stuff. You know, that's also where, where, where we get the County Ham stuff as well. Uh, it's a shame that this got buried, really. Oh, um, oh, actually, no. I just want to quick, quickly just discuss the, the entire notion of Denny being able to use wings takes because that's just an interesting notion in itself you would have thought mpl and paul would just go like um go fuck yourself daddy it's it is it because that he's the primary songwriter on these tracks that he's allowed to use them i'm guessing that's how it worked right so i actually came across an interview from 2018 december 24th 2018 that danny lane did was something called culture sonar and he Mm. talked about that exactly he didn't say much about it. He mentioned that there were a couple wing songs left over that he was allowed to use. He like specifically didn't go into the details. He was like, that's neither here nor there. I think that's exactly what he said. 
there were songs I had from Wings which weren't used, but I had permission to use them, which is neither here nor there. That's what he said about it. Mm-hmm. And then he said some of them, he's not sure who was actually playing on them. Um, he can't remember if it's Steve Holly on one or how or, or which ones exactly he's kind of got. So there, everything, I'm not sure how accurate everything is, but pretty much as far as using the wing songs, somebody gave him permission to probably Paul said it's okay, I guess. Maybe he didn't want it. It wouldn't be a Denny Lane album without massive gaps in the facts and the story that <laughs> I'm glad to see some I'm saying nothing. <laughs> yeah, some things don't change. That's absolutely hilarious. No, I mean I mean part of it could have been, you know, a sweetener, you know, maybe Paul didn't, you know, wanted to, you know, do a little favour for for Denny. So maybe he just allowed that to be speedily uh, processed and so yeah, you yep, yeah, you can use them. Don't worry. The 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 lawyers I believe that. won't say anything. Yeah. But also, I'm sorry, I am going to have to take the song rights from Mullock Entire from you in like a year or so. But anyway, don't let's not talk about that now, Denny. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, after a song we never heard Wings do, we are now going to go to a number that we've heard Denny do a whole lot. We've heard every lineup of Wings do a whole lot. This is Go Now. We've already said You gotta go What a surprise! A Denny Lane album that features a version of Go Now. If you don't know, it's the song that he sung lead vocals on during his tenure with the Moody Blues, and it kind of is his most iconic song. It's his song. It's it's his uh, My Heart Will Go On, as it were. But Chloe, just off the top of your head, how many different solo Denny Lane albums contain a different version of Go Now? In, in my head... I feel like it's like 12. There's about 12 different Denny albums where he does this song. Am I exaggerating there? Yes. No, in reality, I, Go Now is on Japanese Tears. It doesn't resurface on, on any of his actual studio albums, it, except for in 1996, he released Reborn. And then that got repackaged, similar to what we will discuss with Japanese here. So they, the studio took Reborn and then re-released it as Reborn again, where they tacked on Go Now and Say You Don't Mind okay. and put that on the cover. But he actually doesn't include it on most of his albums. I mean, he plays it nonstop. But so I, I do think it's nice that it's not tacked on to sell every album. I think uh, Go Now... So, I, I mean, I'm sick to death of this song. I'm not going to pretend I'm not. It's not like I hate it, but it's, I don't ever need to hear this again. As everyone knows, of course, it's a Bessie Banks song that he recovered in six. He covered it in 1964 with Moody Blues, got that number one hit. 
made them pretty big for a while. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's been singing this forever. Now, this one, I guess, is a little bit different. It sounds exactly the same to me. I mean, overall, just a bit. This one was recorded in June 1988 as a test session for his new touring band before they were going to go out on tour. So we have the official Denny Lane band lineup playing this one. So that's kind of cool. It changes it up a bit. It's nice to have the Denny Lane band recorded somewhere on something. Um, like I have nothing bad to say about it. Go Now is not a bad song, but I want it to just go now. <laughs> It's a perfect middling review in an exact <laughs> horizontal line the whole way through there. Now, I totally get that. Is its inclusion him genuinely wanting to have his own version on a record that he controls? There's probably a part of that. It could also just be a cynical move because he knows it's, it's going to be a reliable hit. You know, the last time he sung it was well, with two different bands. So, you know, he's definitely aping off previous successes there, but he's also including four wing songs. So we know he's not above doing that here. I'm sure in the day, in 1980, there were many a Denny Lane fan that was genuinely excited to see that he was doing mm-hmm. this song, but it kind of just kind of makes me go, Ugh. you know, it really doesn't excite me at all. The whole Denny Lane band, Connection is far more interesting to me. The idea that he was already putting something together in 1980, showing that he really did want to get out there and tour. Do we know much about that little story, that development, when why, why it started, why it ended so quickly? Was it was it all because no one liked JoJo? Is that the reason? Come on. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Agree. No, I don't think it was because of JoJo. Uh- um, after Japan, the whole fiasco in January, that's when Denny decided right then and there, because, you know, he was told Wings wouldn't be touring for a while, and then he was concerned about visas. He was he, um, he's pretty much said that he wanted to just, that was a good time to pursue his solo career and stop kind of putting that to the side. So around June 1980 is when he formed the Denny Lane Band and released that Japanese Tears single, of course. Um, and that's where a couple of these recordings are coming from, all of the ones from the Rock City sessions. I have it here. I found a couple of newspaper clippings. So on March 15th, 1980, Cashbox magazine first re- reported that he was going to set out on tour soon. It says Wings Denny Lane is set to embark on a solo tour, dot, dot, dot. That's the whole thing in there. So yeah, they there was, I think there was logistical problems as well as maybe some other stuff going on i don't know the details um the people who know are the ones who were there i've talked to a couple people who told me some of it um but mostly logistical issues the tour with his solo band didn't actually get started till around june even though he was training for march um solo tours were being announced in solo shows i'm sorry were being announced in the new musical expression express in march 1980 um, and they mentioned some difficulties, just kind of pushing things back. And then Melody Maker referred to it as Denny Lane's tangled UK solo tour uh, <laughs> has now been straightened out, kicking off with three London concerts. And that was, again, June 1980. That's when he finally got it started. The, in all reality, the Denny Lane band didn't do that much. I know he, I think he toured in Russia, I want to say in 1982. Mm. I think. Uh, I know they played in Spain. <laughs> they went to some weird places, and that could have been combined with some other things that I won't go into. Wow. 
but yeah and then but throughout the denny lane band thing it's denny has said if i read old interviews and new ones he stands firm on the fact that he was still planning on doing wings it was going to be more of a side project in the meantime so it was never a leaving wings announcement that he was doing that but it was finally announced in an article i found here from uh 5 81 that said he was officially leaving wings and then there's another one that was just kind of funny. The Longview Daily News said the drummer said goodbye, but they're referring to Denny Lane and calling him the Wings drummer. <laughs> that was classic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it sort of kind of fizzled out. And then he started he started recording other albums. When you've got the the Paul Quits Beatles headline, that's on the front page. Denny, Denny Quits Wings. It's like page 12 of the broadsheet, you know, it takes up a small, a little small square. It's very yeah <laughs> the band itself is quite interesting i've already gone through them all in the uh, pre-recorded segment but uh what what do you think about this selection and do you think it was more a quote-unquote power group or was it again like wings just people he liked to hang around with and people he knew i really think it was still him trying to do what he was doing with the electric string band because he pulled in um Mike Piggott, I think is how you say his last name, who was a violinist. Mm -hmm. So they were still doing the string thing. He also had Andy Richards on keyboards, who was also playing organ and stuff. We, of course, had JoJo on the backing vocal, and I think she always delivers a great vocal, so she was rounding out their Oh, interesting. And he was touring with Steve Holly still as well at that point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that was all of it. And then Gordon, some guy named Gordon Seller, he got in on bass. But I... I don't think they stayed together very long in the group. I think they were done by late 82 at the latest. Hmm. Interesting. Wrapping this up, do you think this song sounds more in terms of its arrangement, like the wings over America version of go now? I, I do feel like uh, Jojo is basically doing the Linda backing vocal here. Would you agree with that? Would you say that this is basically the live version that he's been doing the last 10 years rather than, say, the strict Moody Blues version? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I actually noted down that it was pretty true to the original Moody Blues recording, but I don't think they changed it that much aside from adding mm-hmm. Linda's vocals slash JoJo's vocals. So, yeah, I'd say that's a really fair comparison with the female vocal added on. Definitely gives the Wings Over America sound. Unfortunately. Like, it's a big sound they have. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, they, they. I mean, it's a recording with a big sound. It sounds good. It's just go now, you know. Mm. Unfortunately, though, even though it is one of the better produced things on the record, and and let me just say, across the whole board, this is uh, leaps and miles beyond our lane. I mean, it's 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 still not a triple A production, but you know, it it sounds like a, a quality album now. With only a couple of tracks sounding a little bit off, but here. Unfortunately, it doesn't live up to the Moody Blues recording. It doesn't live up to Wings Over America. And so it does feel just a little bleh and a bit tacked on. If you're one of the 10 people who hadn't heard either of those versions, you probably really would have enjoyed this one. But let's go from one mistake to another now. Let's... uh... (laughs) Oh, my God. (sighs) Folks, let's talk about same mistakes.
This one was written in 1978. And if you start wondering why it wasn't on London Town or Back to the Egg, the answer is A, because it's a bit rubbish, but it's also because it was seemingly written for Jojo Lane, that she's the lead vocal on this track, with Denny seeing that Paul could make Linda a lead vocalist. Clearly he got the idea to do the same here. Maybe there were tensions in Wings about Jojo doing a backing vocal. I bet there were, but it was never going to happen. Linda was certainly never going to let Jojo have a lead vocal, so this has definitely been held back for a solo project. And thank God it was, because it is certainly not the best thing on this album. Chloe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to hold back here. I feel like a classic rant coming on. <laughs> and before I go into this one, I need you to come in for balance and tell me I'm, I'm wrong here. I know you like JoJo's vocals, so I'm interested to hear what you're going to say. I don't love this track, but I don't hate it either by any capacity. I think it's perfectly pleasant to listen to. As you said, Danny did write it specifically for JoJo to sing, and then he overdubbed some backing vocals on it. Mm-hmm. And then Howie Casey did the string arrangement and Steve Holly on drums. So I think we got a, I think it's a pretty neat lineup there. And I do like the strings on the song. I think Howie Casey, his string arrangements throughout this album are really cool and pretty strong. I've always enjoyed JoJo enough as a singer. I have one of her singles over there. I don't, she's not my favorite, but I don't think she's bad either. And I think her voice meshes well with Denny. I'm perfectly okay with them singing together. It almost has like a gospel sound, R&B at times, and it's okay. really slow. And for me, it's just the drop in tempo kind of throws off the flow of the album. For me, it doesn't feel very smooth. I do like the violin, though, as I was saying. Um, the strings add a lot. See, I, I don't have that much to say, but I don't hate it by any means. Let's just get out of the way right away. Any track that's got Howie Casey or Thaddeus Russell... They're probably the best thing on the track. They do offer a very consistent quality to this record com- uh, completely. I-, I love their work. I mean, Denny's known uh, Howie since the Band on the Run sessions in 73, all the way up to the concert for Campuchia in, uh, the year before. So it makes sense that they've developed a rapport. You know, all of the the non-McCartney people are probably all closer friends, you know, than the McCartneys are with any of the other lower rung members of the band you know i imagine denny was seen amongst all the other wings members to be the kind of the conduit to paul so everyone probably knew denny even better than the new paul onto the song itself though um this is a ripe and succulent opportunity for me to get some bile out well i cannot pass up uh, to put it quite simply this may be the worst song i've ever covered on this podcast <laughs> oh my god I, I hate this so much it is every negative word you could think of all rolled into one. I really feel like it barely counts as a composition. There's no distinctive melody or rhythm or beat. It kind of just starts and ends, uh, rather than taking us on a kind of recognisable journey. Uh, very bland indeed, very white toast, middle of the road. But the worst crime is Jojo Lane herself. People say Linda can't sing, right? People say Linda cannot sing, but... Whether that is true or not, when Paul got her in the studio, he made her sound great. But here, this is a case where Denny is so in love or love drunk that he cannot tell that this woman literally cannot sing. 
to the point whereby a guy like me, who is completely tone deaf and should never be let anywhere near a microphone, was literally laughing when it when when it when it first came on. It not a very good song at all. Also, there are these like pan pipes or flutes, these uh, wind instruments, and they intentionally seem to be trying to evoke a kind of Japanese or quote unquote oriental sound it, it is pathetically half-baked and half-assed uh you know paul managed to capture that that atop of mount fuji vibe far better on frozen japanese this felt like a weird connection to the title track like they were still kind of trying to like maybe like create a theme or a run through or something it doesn't work come on chloe this isn't a good vocal you must see that come on I do have to point out that I don't think I, I see your theory about it connecting, trying to like meet yeah. the same theme on the title track. But this one was written first because okay. Japanese te- actually no, you might have a point. I, I'm not sure when Japanese Tears was actually written, but it would have to be after 1980, of mm. course. So I'll debunk that one. But I totally hear your grievances um, as far as you hear going, my grievances. It's not for everyone. And I mean, you're talking to someone who has listened to this album like 10 million times and mm. is completely numb to all the bad points on it. So I could see that it might not be the best, but for me, it's still enjoyable. If that's a fair assessment. This song <laughs> wishes it was cook of the house. This, you know, it really does. Ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> Damning with faint praise there. You know what? Let's let's close out side one though with a song whose title is rather fitting when you think about it, because Paul McCartney writes about golden slumbers, golden earth girls, and he even wrote pure gold for Ringo. So it makes sense that Denny would be one step down and write a song called Silver. who isn't up to date with their Beatle residences, you should know about Startling Studios, where this was recorded with Steve Holly on drums and Howie Casey uh, for the sax solo. And it was 1978, Startling Studios. It's an in-house recording, but whose house? Well, the house is Tittenhurst, and it belongs to Ringo Starr. And this just sends my mind reeling with questions. Were Denny and Ringo good friends? Did Paul make the connection and the arrangement? Was Ringo there for the sessions? You know, wh- why would Denny need to record this song separately from Wings? Did Denny realise that he was being a bit of a George Harrison and needed to start stockpiling some of his own stuff for a solo career? Was this song rejected by Paul? Was it all just a bit of fun? What's going on with this song, Chloe? 
answer any of those 93 questions. <laughs> so I'm trying to think of where to start here. I mean, yeah, as you were saying, this is one of the starting studios tracks on this album. And I think all of the ones recorded there are just the best tracks overall. I think whatever jive they had going there was great. Maybe it was just being in Ringo's studio, his magic was present or something. But yeah, there's, I'll get into it a little bit later as well, but there's some cohesion for me between all the starting studios tracks. So I like them a lot. And this silver is probably when i first heard japanese tears it was outright my favorite track on the album forever just because it's it's pretty cool i like it a lot we have howie casey doing a great sax solo in it and steve holly on drums again so i mean it's a lot of fun it's really bright and energetic i think i think it could use a little bit more energy but at the mm-hmm. same time it's got a really cheerful vibe to it it's hard to say that it's it's cheerful and energetic, but it needs more energy to support the, what it's trying to convey. Mm-hmm. But overall, it, it's a really solid track to me. This one, it's a fun fact that I noticed um, at the Elstree rehearsals in September 1975, Wings ran through this song, because I remember hearing a clip of it. So that this song has been around for a while. I, I wow. wonder when it's actually written. Yeah, it's pretty cool. If you look at the footage, and it's, it comes right up on YouTube. Um, there's them running through a snippet of silver. It's a little bit faster, a little bit different then, so it's been a little bit reimagined here by 1978. But yeah, it's pretty neat. It's very funky and jazzy with some R&B, which goes perfect with the saxophone solo we've got there. What else did I want to say about it? I like the guitar solo at the end, too. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved when to do this live. I think it's a damn shame that they didn't, because it's so good. Wow. So it turns out there's five tracks rather than four that are of the Wings era. That's really cool. I did not know about that in the entire prep for this interview. So thank you for that. That is really cool. That kind of recontextualizes a bit of the Denny Lane Wings career further. I mean, there's probably other tracks that I've missed as well uh, from from one to another, you know, even... The great Paul McCartney project and Beatle books and Beatle Bible can't keep track of all of this for me. I mean, there are so many bootlegs. You know, even if you have all of Momax hidden tracks, you're not going to have all of the Denny Lane ones as well. It's like when I heard that uh, that that London Town session one, and there was a track from Our Lane that was on that. I can't remember which one it is, but find a way somehow. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah. That blew my mind. I thought that that was a lost uh, Denny Lane Wings track, but turns out not. Um, yeah, Silver for me, I get why people would like this, but for me, it's a little too middle of the road. It's a bit, it, it, it leans more towards that generic Denny Lane sound that I'm not that interested in. I mean, don't get me wrong, it really gets the album back on track after the disastrous same mistakes. And it was wise of Denny to have a kind of upbeat, bright, and brassy tune to follow this. It's, it's one that is, again, fairly simple and easy to get into. But it's a little too bog standard for me. I'm not that attached to it. It's got a bit of a 70s Ringo sound to it, which isn't by accident, I really don't think. It does sound like this could be on Stop and Smell the Roses or anything like that, which isn't particularly a good a good thing for me. I'm not a big solo Ringo fan. <laughs> I'd be interested to see what Ringo fans said about this. Of course, Howie is the standout player again. He adds that kind of drive and energy that the song needs, especially since it is maybe a, a few beats per minute too slow, like you say. Yeah, 
fairly mediocre thoughts on this one. One of those horizontal reviews again from me there. You're hard to please. <laughs> I'm a Paul McCartney podcaster. I've got very high standards, you know. I shit on the songs of the greatest songwriter ever. I've got, I, I have to have high standards. I really do. But fortunately, I'm going to be a little more upbeat for this next one because we're going to flip the disc over to side two. And we have another song from the Wings era now, the first of three on this side. And that's certainly something I don't mind. This is Say You Don't Mind. song before despite it never appearing on an album it was actually still performed a total of 30 times over 1972 to 73 and was part of both set lists for wings over europe and the 1973 wings uk tour of course this is all of that kind of pre-band on the run era where the band is always looking for a song to fill the set list so it makes sense that they would exist so prolifically in this period but it also makes sense that paul would never record it sadly though and in many ways, for its own benefit, this song is not a Wings take and is instead the Danny Lane band that we had earlier, the same crew as Go Now. And rather shockingly, they knock this one out of the park. It's the crowning achievement of the entire album for me. I've always been a fan of the kind of rudimentary, simplistic rock chuggalug live version before. And so I was skeptical that Japanese Tears of all albums was going to produce a version that was going to in any way improve on the original, but it did. It actually fucking does. I love this one. And now, Chloe, this is the part when I hand off to you because I've slagged off the song, but in this case, it's the opposite. No, I'm going to be the one slagging off the song here. Go on, go go for it. I'm honestly astounded that, that, I mean, that's totally fair that this... For me, this is not a standout track just because I'm tired. It's, it's lumped in with Go Now for me. I just have heard it so many times and I don't dislike it. I think So You Don't Mind itself is a great song. Um, for those who don't know, the original tape recording was written in 1967 by Denny Lane um, for use, specifically used to audition in, uh, musicians for his electric string band. So um, John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin did the original string arrangement. So it, it's got a great sound to it. Um, and it was one of the two singles that the Electric String Band did release. Now, it, it's a great track that the Electric String Band did, but I will say the audio quality has just never been that good. Like, I have mm-hmm. the two copies of the vinyl, so I don't think it's a wrecked vinyl or anything. It just doesn't sound that good. So, as this is a song I do like a lot. So, I like it more than Go Now on this album, as far as rehashing old songs mm-hmm. that have been released already. But, um... 
yeah, it, it's above go now for me, and I think it's better sounding than the original. It, it is rocking, mm-hmm. and the Denny Lane band sounds great on this. The violin is killer. Um, I don't think there's anything that special about it, though. I think it's just Say You Don't Mind again. If I want to listen to Say You Don't Mind, I don't usually choose this one. I usually would go for the original, but it's nice knowing this is here with a cleaner vocal and cleaner sound overall. Um, and then I I know, I, I guess... I haven't been able to track it down, but Denny did say in an interview that it was on the back of the album as well, that it was released as the double A side single mm-hmm. with Go Now. So, I'll, oh, I actually might have that off check. But yeah, it's okay. That's my main takeaway is it's all right. Honestly, I'm quite shocked. I mean, <laughs> folks, just to be completely clear, I was not aware until it was just mentioned by my guest right now that this was part of the Electric string band. Electric yeah. string band. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to know that. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. So for me, it's always been a wings offcut. That's my perspective going in. And because I haven't heard this song so many times, it does feel all the fresher for me. So they released it with Go Now and Say You Don't Mind on each side. And it, it's okay. I mean, it's nice to have, but it's nothing that special. I'm definitely going to try and pick up one of, one, of, one of those. But yeah, for me, my context was those wings live versions and you know it has its own sound it's very basic and rudimentary it's the wings you know over europe and wing 73 setup of course it's going to be that but here i was glad to see that the song was slightly quicker in pace it was more melodic more elaborate more ambitious all to its benefit and i really thought he stuck the landing and it is impressive how fresh and new and exciting he can make a song that by this point must have been at least what, 12, 13 years old? Um, you know, clearly Denny knew that maybe he'd never fully realised what he wanted for this song and he was going to try and get it this time. And I I think he did. I, you know, I, mean, I really cannot disagree with you with the uh, violin sound in, 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 in here. It's a, it, it's a really slick sound. But so is the whole production, actually. This is top-tier production on this album. I feel like it makes some of the other songs on the album actually sound a bit worse. Like it does highlight how, you know, how grand and professional his sound could be if he just maybe put a little bit more effort in. Uh, the synths on this sound fantastic as well. I love Denny's falsetto notes during the chorus. He really highlights why he's perfect for those McCartney three-part harmonies. It would also be nice if there was a Red Rose Speedway session studio uh, version of this song i mean paul would have got his sticky fingers all over it but you know it'd be nice to have on a bonus disc 30 years later and i i agree with you that unlike go now this does feel a little fresher on this album it does offer something slightly different to the uh, to those who have heard it but especially to those who haven't as well interesting the first song i really start raving about is the one that is getting on your nerves that's really funny Pressing onwards, it's time for the standard peppy Denny Lane ditty, and it's called Somebody Ought to Know the Way.
So my glib shorthand for this song is that the only bits I care about are the short instrumental segments that bookend it. These are clearly the moments that were spearheaded by Harry Casey. They sound utterly beautiful and graceful. And then in the middle, you get this somewhat regressive back to basics Denny Lane rocker that doesn't do all that much emoting at all. Right, Chloe, we're back to the correct dynamic now here. Uh, Please tell me why this song isn't subpar at best. Well, now that all is breaking in the world again, Sam, thank you. Um, I love this. This is, again, (laughs) up there with my just top from this album. Uh, To me, it's so happy. It fits the vibe of the album. It sounds right, like, uh, with Japanese tears. And again, this is one of the Startling Studios tracks. So I I just think those are outstanding throughout the album. Mm -hmm. I love Danny's vocal on this track. I like the lyrics. I like JoJo's backing vocal as well. There's like a country thing going on with the straight rock and roll alongside. I, I like how it's broken up into different parts and they kind of alternate in and out. That mm. might not be the best way to describe it. But yeah, no, it completely stands out for me. Uh, the ending, the lyrics are a little bit repetitive where he just keeps saying the same thing over and over, but it's yeah, yeah. the little fade out. But I don't mind it. Um, again, it's just such a happy song for me. Howie Casey's string arrangement is just, as you said, phenomenal. We got Steve Holly drumming away. And yeah, I just think it fits. And I think it's really upbeat and positive, which is a nice change. I think you could just use a slight rewrite. The fact that he just jumps right into singing Somebody Ought to Know the Way like five, six, seven, eight times right away at the start after this quite mellifluous uh, Howie Casey instrumental bit did kind of bore me immediately. And then uh, the vocal melody and the vocal itself is a little cookie cutter. That's something to really hook me. And I'm really not being glib when I say that the only parts of this song that I like are the bits at the start and end. I'm, that literally is it, you know, this really feels like a wasted opportunity, you know, how he opens so serenely and conjures up all these images about where the song could go. Like, is Denny going to do this pastoral thing? Is this is, is this going to be his Eleanor's dream or something like that? And then we just get two minutes of a very standard Denny Lane release. And then the strings and synths come back for the end. And then I perk up and then it all ends shortly after, you know, it, yeah, not happy with this one at all, to to be honest. <laughs> uh, what also doesn't help is that it's wedged between two absolute bangers from this album. So, you know what, let's just move right on to a song that I am so excited to talk about. And it has a title that really shows that Paul did indeed have a certain lasting influence on Denny, because this is called Lover's Light. Where 
this is another of the standouts of the album for me, meaning two out of three songs on side two are runaway successes, in my opinion, which is something that feels great to say on a Demi Lane episode of this podcast. You know, this is a song that is one thing at the start and becomes something entirely different by the end, and the whole journey is a fun ride, backed up by a fun little love song in the background. Chloe, clearly I'm liking this album, or at least this side of the album, far more than either of us first thought. So once again, I've got to throw you off balance here. But what's your take on Love Is Love? Well, I hate to break it to you, but I actually agree with you. On oh, that. okay, finally. <laughs> it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> I mean, we're never agreeing. So. No, I think this is just outstanding for sure. It, it's a pretty special song, I think. I think it just shows a lot about what Denny Lane's capable of, again, and really shows him off as a songwriter and a musician. Um, this one was recorded in 1980 at Rock City, mm-hmm. and the drums were overdubbed after by Steve Holly, which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we have Thaddeus on flutes, of course, and the flutes just add so much to this. It's, I think it's very peaceful, kind of. It almost sounds sad, but mm. it's not. So I can easily take a nap with this playing on repeat on my headphones or something. I'm very happy with that. I think it really just shows the versatility of Denny as a songwriter, too. Um, there's so much imagery in the lyrics. I'm mm. not going to do this for every song, but I just wrote down a couple that I really liked, which is throw the switch, jump the ditch of a mountain stream through the curdled cream of a mixed up world where they just don't care. And I thought that's just a great line. Wow, yeah. That's just just like loaded. And then he says, put some flowers on the grave because the past is gone and we know not where. I I don't know. It's just kind of got a mystical feeling to it. I think it's absolutely outstanding and it should have been a single. It's definitely a much more mature Daddy Lane composition. I kind of wish more of the album was like this. But Mm -hmm. what I enjoyed so much was just how, like you say, the, the song grows and changes and you know it's this initial slow and dramatic tune and then gets more and more layered and more complex and it gets really quite peppy towards the end the beginning to me sounded very similar to a classic mccartney strummer like sunshine sometime especially maybe like mother nature's son and it's done very well i wouldn't have minded if this was the entire song then you get the bass coming in followed by the drums and the whole thing becomes a little more rocky and then you then you hit the chorus and it finally metamorphosizes into that romantic kind of spirit where we get those flutes and those synths and even a bit of synth horns for the solo segment. And it's all rather angelic. And the, the production for me is as high quality as Say You Don't Mind. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I was like, oh, Denny's actually branching out. He's doing something a little bit different here. Sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes here he is rewarded with fantastic results you know if the title track and same mistakes sounded anything close to this in terms of quality the album would have been far more consistent as a whole this time rather than relying on howie casey though we get thaddeus russell uh, who is the man who actually gets a, uh, a a name call from paul during the live version of listen to what the man said he was another big wing staple the horns unit for them he's the standout here beautiful playing really helps further legitimize the material just as howie casey does and this is another one of those songs that i kind of wish had been done by wings i think if paul and Lyndon were doing the backing vocals on this it could have been a fantastic tug of war track a hundred percent there's gonna be quite a lot of those what ifs i guess on this episode but yeah i was really impressed by this one just genuinely very happy with it not too much more to say yeah it's solid i mean everything you said 
I think the production is pristine. Mm-hmm. It, it's great, and I wish everything could be produced like that on the album. I just accepted that it, it isn't all to that caliber, mm-hmm. but that one is by far outstanding, like the shining star on top of the album. <laughs> on to another Denny Lane original now, and we have Guess I'm Only Fooling. startling studios track with steve holly on drums and the rest by denny and it seems that to me i know chloe's going to disagree here that he was not doing his most daring nor ambitious material in that locale does that mean it's a bad thing not necessarily because for better or worse denny is doing a standard denny lane affair here it is straight up no nonsense blues and so you know what you're getting and you really can't go wrong and to be honest i found this one to be perfectly fine chloe do you prefer it when denny can do a song like this where it's not ambitious but you know he'll do it well or a song that might be more ambitious but might be inconsistent i like both Mm -hmm. i think both have their place absolutely this i'm a big fan of this track as well um i think it's just very solid straightforward Mm. blues as you said um, I love the lyrics in this one. I think it's pretty sarcastic and negative in an amusing way. Mm-hmm. So I always get a kick out of listening to it. It reminds me of Time to Hide a little bit. I'm not sure yeah. why exactly. But something about it just makes me think of Time to Hide every single time I hear it. I love the little piano mashing at the beginning of it when it first starts. There's a little intro there that's just very bluesy and fantastic. My only complaint is it's a little bit short. It's the second shortest song on the album, which I noticed because it always just ends too quickly. Yeah, I have nothing negative to say whatsoever. I think it's rock and blues. It makes sense that this was chosen as the B-side for Japanese Tears. This is perfect B-side material. You know, I was at a pub last night listening to a rock and roll covers band, and it was a blues band as well. And if this was played at a pub or a bar or any venue I was at where I knew blues and rock and roll was being played, I would totally think that this was a, a good track. You know, this is Denny doing what he does best. And he sounds pretty darn good doing it. It's a warm cup of cocoa for the album. You know, you will know that every Denny Lane release is going to have a certain number of songs like this. And it's the solid constant by which all of his other ventures can be measured. Again, it would be more interesting if you tried to give this one the same kind of production value as Say You Don't Mind. But it's done well enough in its simplicity that I don't mind too much. Uh, the only bit I, I, I didn't want to specifically highlight is that little breakdown where it's just the vocals and it's really quick and it kind of goes by without you barely being able to make out what he's saying. But he does actually say something to the effect of, 
I guess there's nothing left to do but shoot myself. And but I love that song. Yeah, <laughs> like it caught me off guard. It's it's darkly funny. It's very jaunty in a an upbeat way. I was like, oh, cool. Denny's still kind of doing some more English folksy uh, little like comedy retorts and stuff like that. That was a little a little, a little highlight for me. But yeah. Again, another pretty middling review for me here. It is what it is. Nothing too complicated. And now we're coming up to the final song from this album that has not got a connection to a certain McCartney-ish band, uh, at least as far as the history books go. I'm, I'm sure Chloe's going to tell me that this was recorded originally during the wildlife era or something like that. This is called Nothing to Go By. So black is the sky You had one last drink But your mouth is still dry Don't weep my baby Baby don't cry Cause the way it is now Is nothing to go This was recorded in 78. And with that synth sound, folks, you can definitely tell. This is another song on this album where Denny's doing something very different, and I automatically commend him for that. Uh, you know, you really can see this as being his attempt at a McCartney 2, whilst also certainly not being anywhere near as good as the material on McCartney 2. But it did actually win me over the moment I discovered how weird it was. This is a very fun little track. It's delightfully strange. I love what Denny was going for, whether he achieves it or not. And I would not hear anything negative about this song. So, Chloe, I'm really hoping that you too enjoy this experimentation with electronic music. Oh, absolutely. I think it's really progressive of Denny, which, again, is something I think he's always been trying to do and he did a lot in the late 80s too this seems this seems like a lead up to what he was going to do in the future a little bit mm-hmm. but yeah no i love the synthie i don't know if it's a move at the beginning but very spacey feeling just kind of like synthesizer sounds kind of like big ben on all lane almost a little less offbeat than that a little more straightforward but not by that much I just think it's worth noting, and I forgot to mention it for the last track too, that Denny is playing all of the instruments, everything on this except drums, which is Steve Holly. So I think he's pretty free to experiment, and when that happens, it definitely can get a little pretty cool. I like there's a like a march drum beat in the background. I had to listen; it's kind of mixed over, so it's kind of quiet, but you can hear like a I don't know if it's a snare, but it's like a march, and it just I know he's singing about winter, and it just sounds like winter. It's great. Um, I like JoJo's vocal as well in the second chorus. She just rounds out everything. I know you can't stand her, but... <laughs> you know, it is her best vocal on the album. It definitely is, because <laughs> it fits the strange sound that they're going for, but I'm not half out of her in a more conventional sense, I guess. Definitely. 
and the other thing I note about this song is there's just if it, there's so much sound like it feels like my speaker is making as much sound as it possibly can mm. when I'm playing this there's there's no like gaps anywhere it, I wouldn't call it highly compressed I mean all of this is to a degree because of how old it is but um there's just so much sound like if I turn my if I put this on vinyl and crank up the bass I feel like I'll blow my speakers out <laughs> but in a good way <laughs> it's definitely a unique soundscape for Denny and it was another fun change of pace for the album you know i thought we'd heard all that this album was going to offer and then boom for his final quote-unquote original piece he gives us this it's another example of denny branching out and it really working in his favor i like how dark and atmospheric it is it really is moody you know the comparison to a big ben though i thought i thought was quite apt actually i'm just having flashbacks to that to that to that song right now is it perfect? Not really. It could be a little re- like repetitive towards the end. It does suffer from the lack of polish that other tracks on this album have. But unlike other songs on this album, this is one of those cases where I do find that rudimentary rough quality does actually work to the track's favour. It actually does kind of make the song sound a little more unique. A bit like how that movie 28 Days Later shot intentionally on bad cameras to kind of give it give it a vibe. I feel like Denny's shooting this track on a purposefully bad camera. And I mean that as a, as a compliment, I really, I I really, I really do mean that. There's not a lot to talk about with this song. It is very simple. It is very repetitive. It is just Denny doing electronica as you've just heard there. It's pretty good. It's pretty all right. It's very ambitious and that's very admirable, especially when we consider that the next two songs are just wings reruns. Yeah. We are, are treated now to a double dose the first one is the more well-known of the two, and it is called I Would Only Smile. I'll begin my story now That you have set me free Girl, we've seen our ups and downs And always This was recorded at Olympic Studios on Wednesday the 22nd of March 1972 during the Red Rose Speedway sessions and was one of the songs that was going to feature on the double album but was cut when it became a single album. This is that recording from 72, so clearly there's no problem with Denny having access to this material like we discussed earlier. I've always loved this song. It's great to hear it here once again. It was probably the one I was most familiar with going in. And, you know, whilst a lot of my affection towards it is purely down to the fact that it was cut from Red Rose Speedway, like anything that's cut or a cold cut or forgotten automatically gets bumped up like five points, purely just because I can think of it as an obscure song. But, you know, it's always nice to hear this one again. It would be part of that value for me as a Wings fan in 1980 if I had the spare cash. I'd be like, oh, I can pick up, I would only smile. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go check out Japanese Tears. 
Chloe, this is also the furthest back that Denny has been willing to look back in terms of songs to include on this album. Well, no, it's not actually. You've just proved that actually. That's my notes uh, being being old and not being updated. But you know, this is him looking back seven or eight years now. Do you think a track like this was worth holding on to, or do you reckon you should have done another original? I mean, I, I like the track a lot. I think I would only smile is is great. I don't really think it belongs on this album, especially right, right here. And I think it's a shame it didn't just end up on Red Rose Speedway in the first place because mm-hmm. I think it would have it would have done a lot better there. That's where it belongs is Red Rose Speedway. It does not belong at the end of Japanese Tears or near end, of course. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I have nothing bad to say about I would only smile itself. I mean, I like it a lot. If I'm, I think the best part of the Red Rose Speedway Archive Edition was getting a remaster of this mm-hmm. because I was finally able to understand what Denny is saying when he says, "If I'm at any time asked if I've known love, I would only smile," because I would always hear that original mix on Japanese series and I could never make out what he was saying. <laughs> so that was the highlight for me of the Red Rose Speedway Archive, just getting to hear that more clearly. It's a favorite of my Wings tracks. It's one of my favorite Wings tracks, for sure. I don't really, I just don't really care for it on Japanese Tears. It totally breaks the flow of the album for me. And it's like I just stepped in a time machine or like climbed into the DeLorean and now I'm in 1973. And I mean, since it's that recording from back then, it's, it just sounds different. You know, Mm. it's just doesn't flow for me. It doesn't work here, but it's not a bad track itself. This is so interesting because that's basically everything I've got writ- I've got written here. Send Me the Heart didn't need a new take because it, it had that unique uh, Nashville production and all those unique players on it. Say You Don't Mind never had an official recording, so it makes sense that Denny would have done uh, a new version of that. But here with this one, even though you know, you've got Henry McCullough on it and that Wings lineup and that's all very well and good and it would help sell the album... I kind of wish he would have done a full-on re-recording here. I feel like that really would have helped the song. He could have done something like Say You Don't Mind, where he could have gone back to the drawing board a bit and made it a little more uh, string bandy and made it a little more ambitious rather than just this kind of sparse and empty rocker. Uh, or, you know, maybe done something like with Paul and Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, whereby he could just add some new overdubs to it or something like that. And going back to what you said, the worst thing for this one is that now you do have that better archive collection re-release version of it. So, you know, this is totally superfluous now. Yeah. Ah. (laughs) You know, after all those years, Paul still is able to outdo Denny Lane and put out the best version of Denny's material. Uh, You know, this does just sound quite poor compared to that one. But at least in 1980, it would have had a certain worth and value for the fans. And finally, everyone, we come to the last song of the 14 that Denny managed to cram onto this album. And it is called Weep for Love. Oh, 
I do a Hot Hits and Cold Cuts side series and I'm pretty sure I've, like the last one I did was on the Back to the Egg sessions and I don't think I talked about this song at all because I definitely recognise the title. I was like, hang on, I've definitely heard Weep for Love before and this is a proper Back to the Egg track and right off the bat, I just, I just want to say this should have been the track on Back to the Egg and not again and again and again. Would you agree? Would you disagree? I think this and again and again and again should be back to the end. Uh, Let's get rid of the rock me. You're asking yeah. the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no. Um, I mean, I think this would have been great on Back to the Egg. It deserves to be there. A lot more people would have heard it. And I think it's one of Danny best compositions of all time mm-hmm. again. So I, I think it's kind of buried at the end of Japanese Tears because that requires somebody to purchase Japanese Tears and then play both sides of the record and get all the way to the end without like walking away or something, which I guess a lot of people are going to do. So I, it's, it's a disservice to the song that it's here. But yeah, this is the Wings take from Wind Castle. Um, and we have Lawrence Juber doing the guitar solo, and I just think it's kind of funny. On the back of the album, they actually, Lawrence, Lawrence's name is spelled incorrectly with a W in it. So I thought that was kind of, it's <laughs> not spelled right on here. But, I mean, yeah, overall, I think it's a really cool song. I love how he's got the open tuning going with all the sliding and harmonics. I mean, I I love it. I love it lyrically. I really like the live version he did on TV. I can't remember what show it was, but in 1980, there's a video of him sitting next to Marianne Faithful, and he plays this, and it's just amazing footage, and it's so great to see. Yeah, he plays Go now in in the same show, yeah. At the end, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I think it's a, it's one of his standout songs. I think it's a little more political than some of his other songs, which I think mm-hmm. is cool. Personally, I like that. And the one thing though I noticed was there's like a clapping subtly throughout the song that made me think of Buddy Holly's song "Every Day." Did you hear that clapping? Mm-hmm. So that was distracting me on my most recent listen. But yeah, it, it wraps up the album well. It's just a shame that it has to be at the end of this album. For me, this is probably one of the great lost Denny Lane tunes. It's certainly far more well-rounded and well-written than I ever expected. It seems that again and again and again was chosen for Back to the Egg because it was fitting the more rock-focused sounds that they were going for. But I think this would sound wonderful in between After the Ball A Million Miles and Winter Rose Love Awake. I feel like it, you know, it would be a great acoustic, uh, ethereal ambitious tableau you know it really would all flow nicely and we could also just get rid of the the rockestra orchestra as well which would only benefit back to the egg sorry folks that's just how i feel it is a legitimate waste that back to the egg was another one of those albums where all the b-sides to the singles were just other album tracks you easily could have thrown this on there you know in those final days we need to give denny lane all the financial help he can get so he doesn't make poor choices uh, that's always part of my head canon. I also think that it's it, um, it's fun that the song has that kind of Denny Lane classic English 
prose feel in the verses. It sounded very old and folksy. It reminded me of a, the Sons of Elton Haven Brown or whatever that fucking song was called. <laughs> but like a better version of it where, you know, it's actually got a song structure put to it. Uh, of course, with it being the final Wings lineup, everyone playing on it is absolutely fire. I love that solo as well. Lawrence, it uh, sounds great here. It's got a very epic soaring tone to it. It sounds like nothing else from Back to the Egg, which I thought was quite in, uh, interesting. And they've done some like double tracking on it as well, so it's got a fun sound to it there. I also really liked the rhythm guitar parts because it sounded like a cheap-out, cost-cutting version of having a string section. Because the way they play it, kind of has like, vroom, vroom, and, it, and it does sound like violins playing. Um, it kind of gave a little more epic feel to the song that I really did enjoy. And yeah, you are right. It does round out the album quite nicely. He does end on an above average track and that is very good, but you are completely correct though. <laughs> the amount of people for, to actually get to this song uh, would be a lot less than hundred percent of people who bought the album. So yeah, maybe it should have been you know, track three or something like that, you know, maybe even track three streaming days, you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So yeah, folks, that is the end of Japanese Tears. So, you know, Chloe, overall, what do you think of this album as a whole? Where does it rank for you amongst his first three here? I would put it, it's hard to rank. It's, it's like on par with, yeah, I like it a I little know. more than Holly Davis because it's not covers. It's not my favorite album that he's ever released. I think it's, I think it's a cool album. I think it definitely has its standout moments. There's nothing painful to listen to on it at least for me like i mean i don't <laughs> mind any i know you, you might have it a little differently ooh, but <laughs> jojo starts coming up yeah. no but um I, I don't really dislike it in any capacity it's just not the first one i'm gonna pull out and listen to mm-hmm. um i don't think it's like to, like to be a little critical it's not that cohesive especially as you've been saying with the production you can just hear that it was recorded in different places and produced by different people and I, I, I think that's a detriment to it. Um, sometimes it feels to me like it's just two albums squished together between the rock studio sessions and the, what's the other studio called? Startling Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Um, overall, it's okay. I mean, I like all the tracks. Again, I don't hate anything. I think it flows fairly well. And I think it's a good showcase of Denny as a singer and songwriter and musician. And just he does touch on some different styles. So I think that's nice. And I, yeah, I think it's a good album to get into his career with if someone's interested. I was quite shocked at how much of this album that I thought was pretty damn good, actually. You know, if I was at a Denny Lane gig, if he ever bothered or dared return to the UK again, you know, there was more than half of this album that I wouldn't mind hearing if it turned up on the set list. There was quite a few surprises. The wing stuff, of course, is the highlight for me. It always will be. But there were definitely songs on here that, you know, were better than I ever would have expected, even with my own cynical outlook on life. Overall, fairly good, I'd say. That's, you know, I'd give it a nice six, six and a half out of ten, something like that, if we're getting down to numbers. Perhaps this would have been better, maybe, if it was a bit more of a coked-up album. Who knows? <laughs> maybe if there was a bit more uh, synthetic energy in the studio, maybe that would have led to something a little more out there. But I think the overall takeaway here is that this album doesn't feature Denny resting on his laurels after the Wings days. He, he doesn't just go back to, like, it's not 
like Ringo doing Buku of Blues or anything like that. This this is Denny trying to take everything he's learned from the last 10 years and put it into effect. Yes, that's not the case with all, all of the songs because a lot of them are reused and rehashed from previous stuff. But from the new material we do get on here does show him advancing and progressing in a far more interesting way than I think most people would give him credit for. I think you said it great there, definitely. I I think the biggest obstacle when it comes to this album for people isn't actually listening to it, but it's finding the right one to listen to between all the different releases, you know? Well, folks, you can listen to this album on Chloe's YouTube page. It is a direct rip of your vinyl copy, which is hilarious. You actually get a nice crackle on it, which is a fun feature for a, a YouTube video. The real... It skips too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but that adds, it, that adds to the charm for me. <laughs> the most pertinent question for me, though, is how much how much more content is there to mine for me as a McCartney podcaster in the you know in Danny Lane's future here? Is there anything worth touching on, or is it mostly just exactly what I think it's going to be from this point onwards? As a, from a Paul McCartney podcasting perspective, I mean, it's not like. Paul's not too involved no, in the rest no. of it, so I think that's your But question. there's no, like, Paul song in the future. Like, there's no How Do You Sleep at Night that he releases in 1983 or something like that, you know? It's unreleased, but Denny does actually have a song he wrote for Paul pretty recently. It was supposed to be on his album that's probably not coming out, unfortunately, called Valley of Dreams, which was supposed to come out a while mm-hmm. ago. But it's called Below the Waterline. I'd recommend looking it up. It's an interesting, it's like a friendship song towards Paul. He sometimes plays it live. There's that, but that's about it. Man looks up something on computer. Okay, there we go. That is my homework for after this episode. Thank you so much again, Chloe, for coming to join us here today. You know, there is no one who I'd want to do these Denny Lane episodes with. Your expertise has been absolutely astounding again. I thought I had all the notes I could ever find on the internet. You know, there are like three whole websites that talk about this album, you know. Uh, but, you know, you've managed to come in with so much more information. It's helped recontextualize my view on this album just a little bit, you know, and every little helps with stuff like this. So this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. I had a lot of fun doing this. I mean, it's always a pleasure just to get to talk about this to somebody who will listen. But <laughs> no, for real, it's a lot of fun doing this. So if anything ever comes out in the future and Denny and Paul do a collaboration, I'll be glad to jump on another podcast with you. <laughs> No, I I imagine this must be brilliant for your mental health to be able to vent for two hours about Denny Lane stuff with a receptive you have audience. No idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those around me are grateful for you for doing this, so nobody else has to hear it for a while. <laughs> I mean, all of my friends, I must I must assume feel the same way about whenever I get a guest on on the show as well. You know, it's a. It's always nice to know that, that there are people out there. Would, would would I have known that there was such a Denny Lane fan in the world without the advent of the, the, the internet? Probably not. But, you know, it's always nice to connect with people around the world to talk about such pertinent topics as Denny Lane. So your YouTube channel is the same, I assume. I'll be putting the links all down below. Is anything coming up? Do you want to plug anything? Or are we going to have a recap video of your... Uh, any lane performances maybe oh definitely so i'm i'm very i am looking forward to it because i've got second row and first row for the time oh, wow. so i'm gonna take lots of videos i'm gonna put the I, hopefully if it fits up on my phone storage wise i'll put everything up on youtube so i'll try to get some nice stuff up there for him just to have people be able to watch it and see what he's up to nowadays 
Yeah, again. Thank I you. Said, <laughs> I'm just thinking. I should have said you were Paul or nothing, Sharon. Now, if you're going to be in the front, at the front. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. I'm sure I'll find some way to get you back on the show. Maybe we'll rank all of Denny's stuff in Wings. You know, no matter how dubious or pathetic the topic is, I will be sure to get you back on the show. Chloe, this has been great. Excellent stuff. Folks, you'll be listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. We've just been talking about Denny Lane's 1980 release, Japanese Tears. I've had my wonderful guest here, Chloe Costello. Go and check out all of her stuff. Links down below. But that's it for today. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Harry, Harry Krishna. Peace and love, peace and love. Play us out, Denny. Why